Hello again, friends, and you are our friends, and welcome back to another edition of Jim Cornette's Drive-Thru right here on another summer's day. And of course, we have a lot to talk about, but we're going to begin right away by talking about the life, the career, the man who we all love, Terry Funk. I am the great Brian Last, but here is the star of the drive-thru, Mr. Jim Cornette. Well, this is, um, this is another one that I could have done without doing, to be honest, this show, and not because of, we don't want to talk to the listeners, but because of the subject that we have to address at the top of the program before we do anything else, because one of the most important figures in not only in my lifetime in wrestling, but in the history of professional wrestling is gone. And, you know, we've, it's kind of cathartic, I guess. We do these shows when we don't want to and get it out. Uh, this just, the news just came out yesterday afternoon as we're speaking. And, you know, you, Brian, and I, we both, we've had, over the last few weeks, family issues, medical issues, you know, all kinds of tugs on our time back and forth. And it's like, oh, we got to record. We got to watch this. We got to watch that. I'll reveal we're not going to talk about last night's AEW Dynamite on the program because after I heard, and I know, Brian, you feel the same way, after I heard what the news was yesterday afternoon, the last thing I wanted to do was watch any more current wrestling. Um, so we'll pick up some of the things that we might normally do on this program on the experience in a few days, however long it takes us. But as you said, Terry Funk passed away. He was 79 years old. And, you know, people who are within the business have known for some time. I can't remember how long it was that that Terry's been living in an assisted living facility. And he was that start a few years ago, having good days and bad days. And, you know, you haven't seen, obviously he hasn't made any public appearances in some time now, but some people have had the opportunity to go out to West Texas and visit him. And, so people were kind of prepared that the day was going to come, but it still obviously is not any easier when it does. And, you know, everybody's been making comments, not only the fans, uh, everybody in the business has either been interviewed or statements or tweeted or whatever, but predominantly the feeling is, was he the greatest of all time? And that's so broad and so subjective. But can you honestly make a case for anybody that in the history of our business that has been that level of star for that long a period of time and performed at the level he did, not only the physical part, but the psychological part and the verbal part, drew as much money in a variety of situations and or was a pivotal part of so many promotions and so many great moments. And behind the scenes, not only was a, a mega superstar in the ring in Japan, but behind the scenes was instrumental in... Baba's pipeline of American talent got tons of guys 
their first Japanese exposure, but he was an point I'm making is he was an important guy in the ring, out of the ring for a longer period of time at the top was never used as a preliminary guy pretty much his entire career after he broke in in Amarillo, you know, at his dad's promotion and obviously, you know, made the spot shows and the tank towns and was on early on the card at that point. But what, Brian, by a couple years into his career, when Dory, who was a couple years older, started making out dates and the campaign for him to be world champion, Terry and Dory Sr. started making out dates in support of that, Florida. They worked Madison Square Garden in the early 70s because of Dory's respect, seniors' respect with everybody. So was there was there ever anybody that came along and after an initial period of breaking in as a rookie, he was a main event featured guy in every promotion, everywhere he ever went, multiple places around the world. And for that long, that's we're talking the late 60s for the next 50 years. You know, even beyond that, and that itself is an incredible achievement, something I tweeted out because I thought about it, is there anyone else, especially with that longevity, who just about every single night, because I can't think of examples where it didn't happen, stole the show of every yeah. event he was on. Everyone walked away. That guy, Terry Funk, was crazy, but he was really entertaining. Or I have to see this guy. I saw this promo. I have to see him. You talk to fans in Florida, and they talk about what a big deal it was when he would reappear on TV for a promo. They had to go down and see him. And I think Terry Funk is one of the first guys who, not that people dogged it, and you know that era better than me. I'm not saying that at all. But every night he went out of his way so that you were talking about him. Yeah, well, and it it wasn't just bumps. Um, no, it it was everything. But there were those too. But there were those too. Oh yeah, <laughs> but it was the impression he made, and he could read a crowd, and he could, you know, I mean, we, we could be here all day. We probably will be, and and we don't have anything better to talk about. But I go back to again. You talk about must see. I've talked about it a million times, that match with Lawler in March 23rd, 1981, the Mid-South Coliseum. The thing is, I had seen <clears throat> some element of Terry. Obviously, we talked about this on one of the programs recently, but, you know, before video, I'd gotten to see him on the undercard of the Ali Inoki uh, match when... He went to a 30-minute Broadway with Jack Briscoe. The undercard was broadcast here from the Omni, the NWA promotion. I'd seen him in Paradise Alley. I told you earlier this morning, I went and saw Paradise Alley in the theaters in, what, 1978, five times. Just to, I bet that may have, I may have been the person that doubled its box office take. It was a flop, but Terry Funk was sensational in the wrestling scenes and seeing Stevens do the turnbuckle bump. Right. And all you couldn't see that anywhere else because, you know, there was no home video yet. And when Terry won the uh, or lost the NWA title, rather, uh, they showed that to Harley in 77 in Toronto. They even showed that on Memphis TV, only three or four minutes. 
but you you got the you know the sense of him in the magazines. He was all over the place in the Japanese magazines. We just talked about Koichi uh, passing away, Yoshizawa passing away. You know, I was able to see all those pictures of the matches he was having before I was able to see the matches, and then was able to get the tapes later. But point I was making is, you go back to that match with Lawler in '81. It was one of the, or maybe the single most impressive, incredible live performances from anybody that I've ever seen in wrestling. And I've said it, it wasn't, again, because of bumps, although the, the one camera from the Coliseum stands doesn't do it justice because if we had high def and floor cameras and modern audio, the people were hearing, and you can still hear it on the audio, but the people are hearing him shriek and scream and calling Lawler a pig and squealing at him. And the people are able to say the blood is shooting out. Lawler got good juice. Lawler was never, <clears throat> he was never shy about getting juice, but you don't see him covered a lot. But he had the white tights and the blood shooting out of his head and Funk is bleeding. And he's fucking, and his eyes are either wide or rolled back in his head and everything he did. At that point in time, I'd been going to the matches for seven years. I'd been a photographer for five years at ringside, weekly in Louisville, regularly in Lexington, weekly in Evansville. I'd been to the Omni. I'd been to see uh, Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville. I'd been to Indianapolis to see Dick the Bruiser shows. I had been um, a variety of places. And it fucking floored me. I was blown up after watching this fucking thing. And I wasn't as obviously as smart to the business then as I am now. So I went because I wanted to see Terry Funk versus Jerry Lawler. I'd not gotten to see Funk had never been to Louisville at that point ever. And he hadn't wrestled Lawler in Memphis in 76 when he was the NWA champion. So, and I knew the Japanese magazines are going to love the pictures, right? But what I saw now in hindsight, Funk was starting a program with Lawler. And traditionally when you start programs, it's another guy in the territory. And so the heel just jumps the baby face or they have a match on TV with a disputed finish or whatever. And the guy's already over in the territory. But this was Terry Funk coming in, hadn't wrestled in a town in five years, going against the top babyface and going to start a long-term program. He knew he had to fucking get over. So in one night, in a match with a count-out finish, right, of all things, he had those people screaming and yelling and panicked and drained and you can see on the on the videotape it's on youtube that when lawler finally takes the chair to to terry out on the floor and is just beating him like paul bunyan and you hear the whack whack of those big heavy padded coliseum chairs were not comfortable like getting hit with a goddamn frozen fucking turkey the people in the front row are the women, especially the girls. I knew some of them. They were smart to the business. They were backing up over the backs of their chairs with horror on their faces. It was a goddamn performance. And that instantly sold me 
as again, one of the more jaded viewers, right? I was the biggest wrestling fan in the world, but I'd seen a lot of shit. I needed to see this fucking guy every time I could. And that for that whole program, I was driving back and forth, Memphis, Louisville, Lexington, wherever the fuck he may be. Because it was all, it was always a different match. It was always chaos, but it was always different. I'm rambling now. No, you're not. And you know, when I first started tape trading, it was a big deal. Now it's so easy to find a lot of these things, but to find like the definitive cut of Lawler, Terry Funk, Empty Arena. You know, you'd get one version that was slightly edited. Another version, you couldn't see Lance smoking his cigarette. Another yeah. version, you didn't get to hear any of the cursing. But when you finally got it and got the whole thing, it was a big deal. You know where you got that from? Is that from you? I went over to Jerry Jarrett's house out in Hendersonville, the big one we were talking about recently. And Randy West, the, the office wing, had all the tapes that they had saved set up there on a metal stand. And I would take my VCR over, and while he pittered around and did his shit and we talked about wrestling, I hooked it up and I would dub over copies of all the shit that they had left that I could get of that time period. And one of them was the unedited with the cussing of uh, Empty Arena Match. Was that a big so deal it, to you to get that Oh, good version? God. Are you kidding? <laughs> if, if the car had caught on fire on the way back home, I would have grabbed the box of tapes and let the car burn. That was, I got a lot of stuff there that they still had at that time because we've talked about that they erased all their tapes, but that definitely was a big deal. And, you know, that's the thing is that that match obviously made me a Terry Funk fan, which I already was anyway, just because of his persona and the things I'd seen in the movies. And, but once you got to start seeing him work, then. You know, he and plus I got to meet him at that point. He knew not only was I a huge fan of his, but also I was taking pictures for Gong magazine. So he was more than kind and opposing or, you know, not he would that's the thing is the first time he did it, I almost shit myself, and then I came to expect it, but I never let him get too close. If I'm shooting pictures at ringside, right? And he's working with Lawler, and he's got Lawler down on the floor, and he's hitting with the fucking chair, whatever, he turns and he sees me. And he starts looking at me. And then I put my camera down from my face, and I kind of see that he's looking at me. And then he takes a step or two toward me with that kind of sideways walk, and he looks a little stranger at me, and I, I just started doing this because it was kind of natural. I kind of... You see me backing up and where I'm kneeling down, I start to come up in a squat like, what, are you talking to me? Are you looking at me? And then he'd take a couple more steps and I'd stand up and start backing up and he'd break out in a run. And I would take off and he'd run me two laps around the ring until maybe Lawler would come up when I passed him and fucking nail him and stop him. They get back in their match. Anytime you ever saw Terry run, he never looked like he was taking a step back. It looked like he was running full steam at whoever he was running at. Yes, but he didn't. I made sure he never caught me because there was obviously, I didn't know this was coming. <laughs> he caught you in 83. Well, hold on. <laughs> <I'm not there. laughs> 
<laughs> As a photographer, I was like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen, but he knew I was smart enough to work with him, right? And if I hadn't worked with him, he probably would have, you know, he'd had to rip my clothes off or something. But the people would react to that because they would see he was a master of the pantomime. They would see him look at me. And they would look then to see what he was looking at. And then they would see the reaction of the person he was looking at was, oh, shit. And then it would they'd get with it. And when I was running away from him, they're cheering like, run, run, run. You know, so a couple years later. Well, before you get that, I just wanted to ask you a question about all this. Yes. Are you a sissy? Well, that's the thing. <laughs> because... <laughs> I think I see a sissy, Lance. Um, so it's it's Super Bowl weekend of 1983. And the Coliseum is literally running on Sunday afternoon. You can come at, I think it was 1 or 2 o'clock and see the wrestling matches and get back and five, by 5.30 you can be back home and see the Super Bowl, right? And with that strategy, it was a little off. I think we only did six or 7,000 people. Whatever. But nevertheless, um, that weekend, Terry comes in to make the Memphis TV on Saturday morning and then the Sunday afternoon show. And now all the people have remember the Lawler Funk battles, the empty Coliseum, the stabbing in the eye, the double juice, blood bass, the chaos, right? But now it's, oh, God damn it. Jimmy Hart was managing, was it Bobby Eaton, Sweet Brown Sugar? No, 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 no he was, was on your Bobby side. He was on, well, no. Well, not your side, their side. side. Yes. If Bobby was involved. I think it was Sabu the Wild Man, who was really Coco Samoa before the modern Sabu. And another heel, whoever, it was Jimmy Hart's guys, against Lawler and Coco Ware had switched babyface and left the first family. And they bring in the special six-man tag team partner, and it's Terry Funk. And they do the fucking confrontation with Lawler and Funk on TV where... You know, you don't know whether they're going to fight or not. Coco's trying to be the peacemaker. He was just shitting himself being in between them, right? And there, Terry does the thing where I'm going to do whatever I need to do to hold up my word, Lawler, if you do the same. And I think maybe do they slap each other and whatever. And then when I got to TV that morning, I'm managing Jesse Barr and Adrian Street, right? But I see that Jesse Barr is in a six-man tag with, I think, was it the Master Marauders, who was like, God, was it probably Jim Jameson and Tom Maley or just local Memphis job guys, the, the Master Marauders, like the matching suits, like the Purple Bombers, right? And Jesse Barr is their partner, and Jesse sees the goddamn lineup on the wall, and he thinks, well, they're jobbing me out. I'm teaming up with two job guys against Lawler and funk and coca where they're jobbing me out what the fuck i need to go ahead and give my notice and he was really he was freaked out about it but it was all to get me on the other side of the fucking team because they knew how much i loved funk and they wanted to rib me and fuck with me some kind of way and i don't to this day 40 years later know whether that lawler said hey terry chase him around and you know rip his pants off or whether Lawler just said, just chase Cornette or just do something with Cornette. 
But the only thing I got was, hey, no, we're not going to beat Jesse. We're going to beat one of the Marauders. They got to be like five minutes and then, you know, they're going to do the promo or whatever. And so in the middle of the match, Funk has already done the promo about Jimmy Hart. I think Jimmy Hart's a sissy, Lance. Well, then in the middle of the match, I'm there at ringside and, he, and Terry goes over and says, Lance Russell, I think I see a sissy. Well, he accuses Lance of being a sissy as well. Well, are are you a sissy, Lance? No, no, Terry, I'm not. Well, I think I see a sissy. Hold on, I have this. Are you a sissy? And then there's a faster version. Are you a sissy? (laughs) And here he comes. And I'm like, oh, shit. And the first time... No, it was the first time he got me. And then the second time I made it out of the building, I think. But nevertheless. I thought it was the other way. I thought you made no, it out the first time. That's right. That's right. The first time he, he chased starts chasing me. <laughs> he chased me around the studio. And I just, I didn't know what else to do. I just took out through the back door, right? At the back into the uh, break room. It was so fast that the cameras were having a tough time capturing the chase. Yes, because I was legitimately scared. I didn't know what the fuck was going to go on here. <laughs> so then I sneak back out while he's beating up the and they're hitting these job guys with chairs and a head and whatever the fuck. And then boom, it's over. And then he sees me glance. I think I see a sissy again. And now, now that the match is over, he takes me around one way. And as I'm running Coco, the little weasel, he drops down and blocks me off. And I'm like, oh shit. And the only, I, I try to go in the ring. I turn left because Coco's in front of me. Terry's coming up behind me. And there's Jesse. He don't know what to fucking do. He don't know what's going on here. As I'm diving in head first, I give him my goddamn hands. And he's trying to pull me in the ring by my arms. And Terry later, in happier times, told me personally that this is what he used to do. His father told him or taught him to do this when a mark came in the ring and wanted to fight. What he did was, as I'm diving in the ring head first, he, without checking to see if I was wearing any underwear, put his hands in the pockets of my pants and fucking ripped them and peeled my pants right off of me in half. And Jesse's pulling me, and he pulls me right out of most of the pants. There, I think they're around my fucking ankles or whatever and i'm tripping and i'm rolling and i roll out the other side and i'm holding my pants up and my underwear on live television in front of three hundred thousand people and off i run again and it was uh, again that was the biggest and then your promo afterwards where you have the pant like duct taped like around oh yeah because it's the only pair of pants i had (laughs) i had to leave the television station and drive to nashville right so i fucking put duct tape and taped the pants on and and we had like a minute and a half promo at the end of the show and I came out and I screamed funk and everybody in the back thought that I'd said fuck but anyway funk I can't believe you're in my pants off and I had to talk about Dundee because that was our issue but nevertheless so the point is yes they put Lawler was uh, in charge of this segment and they put me across from Terry because they knew Not only was I a huge fan and they wanted to rib me, but also the reaction would be fantastic. And also, again, Terry knew what to do to get over because Jimmy Hart had been beaten up. 
I'd been beaten up on TV. If I took a bump or whatever, I mean, people would pop. But but the chaos of the chases and the chair throwing and the, I see a sissy, and then the ripping the pants off and, you know, seeing me depart in my underwear, that in, in 10 minutes he got over for the audience watching Memphis television as strong as you possibly could. And the people in the studio are jumping up and down. By the end of it, he turned his ire again to Lance and Lawler and Coco are holding him down. He's trying to lunge at Lance going, you're a sissy, Lance! Yeah, you're a sissy, Lance! I'm going to get you in there. He's trying to crawl away from them as they're holding him bodily, both of them. It was just, that was the thing. But he didn't have to be crazy all the time. Because when you think about it, at home in West Texas in the 60s when he was a cute little bleach blonde-haired boy, he was a smiling baby face. You see the pictures. You put out a bunch of them from the wrestling news files. A smiling baby face in a cowboy outfit. But then when he'd make out dates because it was more, that was a more, uh, uh, I apropos that he be a heel, especially when he's going around with his dad campaigning the Funk family for Dory to be the champion. And that's what he would do late 60s, early 70s, he'd be a, an evil cowboy, a nasty cowboy, when he went and did outdates as a heel. And I remember one of the first magazine covers that when I found wrestling magazines, I think this one was from, what would it have been, 72? Remember the, the big bloody picture of Terry in the caption, I'm not my brother's policeman? That was like the big book of wrestling or whatever, maybe. Or maybe it's one of the London publishings. But they would send Terry around. If you could, Terry would either be trying to collect a bounty on Dory's top challenger in the territory, or if you could beat Terry, then you could maybe get a shot at Dory, but he was going to try to stop you. And he was going territory to territory doing that, and he could be a heel or a baby face, depending on the situation. And just, and, do it almost instantaneously. He could switch from one thing to the other. And then, I know, you know, promoters' kids get a bad rap as well. They, you know, they had it handed to them on a silver platter. But, I mean, my God, I don't think anybody's ever said, after Dory Sr. died in 73, not a, all the, Terry was in more territories and was in bigger spots. All those promoters didn't do that because they loved his father. It's because he drew money and everybody wanted to work with him and he was fucking great. And then in the mid seventies, remember at the same time he'd be a heel in Florida with the beaded braids in his hair and the orange shirt that says dusty sucks eggs somewhere else, maybe out in Texas, he'd be the smiling baby face that, you know, was taking up against the evil heel uh, for the honor of the state of Texas or, you know, whatever the case. If you think about even like the early 80s, in the States, he may pop up in Florida or Georgia or Memphis or wherever it may be. Sometimes he would have some facial hair to really add to things. And then whatever, at the end of the month, he would shave it off and go to Japan where he was the biggest baby face ever. Yeah. There was no American babyface ever as big as Terry Funk was in the early 80s. And rem remember, there's some great video. Did he have the crew cut because of the movie? I think so. Frankie because the it, Thumper. Because it's the 78 right? tournament, isn't it? Yeah. 
Um, so he got, he shows up with a fucking crew cut because of the movie, but it's still that's the first uh, video that I got really started seeing the funk, specifically Terry, was the Japanese stuff because obviously you know that was the the prize tapes that you could get at the time was Baba and Anoki's shows and the main event matches. We've talked about those. Um, unlike anything you'd see in the United States, but my God, not only were the matches great, but the entrances, the, the Japanese people had normally been, you know, not indifferent, but reserved, sed sedate at, you know, public events and everything. And then here comes Terry Funk and the streamers and the hoopla and children, <laughs> kids running around. And there's people, hanging on him around his neck to where he's trudging to get to the ring. And they almost pull him off the side of the ring when he's trying to get up on it. And they're just raving lunatics screaming for Terry Funk. He was the most popular American in the history of Japan. I would think And as some people would say, Brody or Hanson, I, they loved, they, they loved to watch Brody and Hanson wrestle, but they just loved Terry Funk as a person. And Hanson, over time, there's an argument. But again, I think if you're looking specifically at the peak, 1983, there's never been an American, even the Destroyer, for that peak, there's never been an American that was as popular in Japan as that yeah. moment for Terry Funk. I mean, he had commercials, he had endorsements, he did the, the album, singing. Uh, some of that stuff was Jimmy Hart's music that didn't become yeah. a hit in Memphis. He just did the same songs. That's why you hear Terry Funk singing, We Hate School. Yeah. Uh, my DJ's playing my favorite song. But again, you look at the magazines. We talked about them recently from that period of time. It went so, not overboard in a bad way, but it was so overboard with Terry. Multiple different magazine companies all doing big features on Terry. Magazines just about Terry. They go to Amarillo. And then it's really cool because there's like pictures of Terry at home, pictures of Terry on the ranch. And then it seems like they just go anywhere with him. Here's Terry at the bank. Here's yeah. Terry at the <laughs> bar. Here's Terry just shaking hands with people on the street. <laughs> but there's many different photos in magazines like that. He was that big. If you think about wrestling figures, you know, before the LJNs, they were the poppy figures out of Japan in 1981. First round of figures, Terry Funk, he's in there. So when it goes back to the beginning of wrestling collectibles or figures, he's in the conversation. And you brought up Paradise Alley before. Think about what that would end up meaning in the long run. The relationship with Stallone leads to Hulk Hogan getting recommended for Rocky Three. That yeah. changes wrestling forever. And as a matter of fact, Stallone, I think I've mentioned this before, the stuntmen on the movie because they, they shot a lot of the scenes in West Texas. That's why Tommy Gilbert, who was wrestling as Johnny star at the time, not the Indianapolis Johnny star. He's in it. And in DiBiase in it, um, Murdoch was there at Murdoch. Um, and uh, some of the stuntmen were making fun of wrestlers or wrestling or whatever. And Stallone, shouted him down. He said, Hey, these guys do what they do in one take with people on all four sides of them. So fuck off. Um, but that's the thing with Terry in that movie, instead of just being in the wrestling scenes as some of our other favorites were, he actually got to play a part and 
fuck? You know, he was the most interesting thing in the movie, to be quite honest. Uh, as we mentioned, it was not an Academy Award winner, but it appealed to the wrestling fans because of a slice of that time period. But think about this. In that time, Dory Sr. had passed away in 73. Dory Jr. and Terry inherited the company. And obviously they had, oh, good Lord, what was their brother-in-law's name? That, uh, that Oh, shit. I, I know who you're talking about, too, and I don't remember his name. But he did a lot of the, you know, running of the company, but still they, their names were on it. But at the same time, Dory was the, well, it just had just lost the, the title in 73. Terry would win it in 75. And that's the thing. You look at Terry when he's wearing the NWA title belt and he's got the long velour robe on and the fucking headband and a normal head of hair. He was what two fifty at that point. He was big. He could. He had the size where he could hang with Harley Race and the other guys. As you know, that he needed as champion, but he could still move around. But he looked more normal because he had to carry the the belt. He was the champion. He couldn't be a psychopath, and he worked his world title matches as one of the best. He wasn't a technical wrestler like like Dory was noted as being a technical wrestler and and or a, an amateur guy with an amateur background. You know, some of them would be known as technical wrestlers, but Terry could do the body slams, the suplexes, the backbreakers, the atomic drops, the pro wrestling drop kicks. He could do all that shit. And as champion, he worked a champion style. But then it, you know, when when that was done, he would morph back into his crazy psychopath heel or his, you know, goofy, smiling, cheerful baby face until you piss him off, depending on what was needed. But then think about this. Again, I said he was like what 250 when he was NWA champion because you needed to have some size. But as he got older, and leaned out, especially in the mid-80s, that rangy, you know, uh, kind of halfway crooked physique that he had became what he was more known as. A lot of people wouldn't remember him as being the size he was in the 70s. Well, let's talk a little bit about the end of the 80s when he came to the NWA, because that may have been the best physical shape he was actually in for his whole career. Of course, he ends up hurting his back, but, but he was in great shape. He looked incredible. What do you remember about... Now, you weren't there when he first came back for Wrestle War. That was during your hiatus, correct? <clears throat> yes, and I, I was extremely pissed off when I found out they shot that angle and I wasn't there, but I was watching it on pay-per-view, so I actually got to experience it as a fan. But um, So you didn't know he was going to be there as a fan? I mean, well, as a no, fan, he, as a co-worker, you're watching this and Terry Funk showed up? No, I didn't know they were going to do Remember, he was a judge at ringside. That's right. So they, they, I knew that was going to, I didn't know they were going to shoot an angle. I thought it was going to be another WCW, here's RoboCop or whatever, right? And I should go back one thing real quick. The NWA title years, that's what I was going to say, um, is he was still part owner of the Amarillo promotion that he got from his dad. Plus he's the world champion traveling all over the place. Plus he's you know, Terry Funk, so he's going to put everything into it. That's when he and Vicky had trouble. And the only reason that he asked out 
as the champion was he wanted to which he did go back home and fix things with Vicky and they were together what another 30 years until she passed away for was it 40 wait a minute how I think it would have been in the 40s because that's 78 70. to 2018 40 years yeah so he did that you know that's why that he you know asked out early as as world champion but still you know he kept up the the Japanese tours and the periodic territories but then in the mid 80s that brief period of time he he and dory went to the wwf and dory became hoss i think terry went uh, first hoss joined him after the fact yeah but, so ter terry was adam too bad they well and then i guess jesse Barr became jimmy jack or little joe he replaced terry when terry left they needed another yeah. crazy brother so they invented jimmy jack and that's, you know what, Jesse Barr, uh, again, you know, uh, he had the uh, kind of the appearance of trying to work like Terry, but he, he wasn't Terry. A lot of guys did, though. Isn't that one of the biggest problems with well, Dick Slater? If you see Dick Slater after you saw Terry Funk, you see a guy doing an impersonation of Terry Funk? Well, yes, and that's what he, because that's, Slater was trying to work like Terry Funk to the point where even people like Dusty and everybody would say, God damn, Dickie, you're, you're good on your own, baby, but you don't need... It when, when Terry was champion and coming into Knoxville and the promo, the tape wasn't good or whatever, they actually had... They put highlights up of Terry and had Slater do Terry's promo in a voiceover and nobody knew the difference. But anyway... Uh, but yeah, so so through the mid '80s, he's you know kept up the the Japanese thing. He's done the brief stint in the WWF. He did a couple more movies, a couple more TV shows, whatever. And then the final Flair and Steamboat match at Wrestle War '89 in Nashville was going to be, you know, there were going to be judges at ringside because they had gone, they went two out of three falls, but. Uh, 58 minutes or whatever in New Orleans, right? Right. That was so, the night that George Scott, that cost him his job. Yeah. They did that in an empty building instead of the Superdome. So then they say, okay, if it goes to the time limit, we'll have judges at ringside. And that is, as you mentioned, we had just started our hiatus where we, we were getting away from George Scott. He got fired before we finished, but we needed a vacation. So the one NWA pay-per-view that I had missed since they'd started them, I'm sitting at home in Charlotte watching it on TV because I had to see the Flair and Steamboat match. And when Terry gets in and starts doing the interview afterwards and starts having words with Flair, I realize they're doing a fucking angle. Holy shit. And of course, it turned out to be not only a great angle, but that was the only... Ric Flair versus Terry Funk was the only thing the WCW did in what about an 18 month period that drew serious money at the gate and the pay-per-view buy rate. And so I was like, Oh shit, I missed it. But goddamn, at least we're coming back and he's still going to be there. And you know, that was the, everybody at least the one thing they could agree on in WCW, we've talked about the constant booking changes and the, the booking committee gave way to flair and then heard interfered so much flair quit. And it was a committee again. And then Ole was in, but everybody 
wanted to do something with Terry Funk, except for Jim Hurd. That's why that 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 run he got with Flair and and also with Steamboat was kind of uninterrupted because even the booking changes, nobody was going to say, "Well, no, we want to move Funk out of here," except for Hurd. So the booking committee had made the deal to bring him in. Eddie Gilbert was still on it. Loved Terry Funk. Jim Ross respected Terry Funk. Sullivan. Kevin Sullivan. Yeah. So, you know, they got that started. And then when Flair later on in the summer saw that things were, you know, continuing to go to shit in other directions, he wanted to be the booker. Obviously, the first thing he did is magnify what they had been doing and we loved the plastic bag over the head loved it loved it loved it i don't even know the reason why but we loved it because it was it was classic terry funk it was an old-time wrestling angle for the people who don't have any idea what i'm saying so the fucking deal on one of the clash of champions is flair is the baby face funk and his manager gary hart and the rest of gary hart's army uh, yeah, they're the heels, and Funk takes a plastic bag and puts it over Flair's head, and you're seeing Flair struggling and trying to breathe. Oh, my God, and the people are screaming. It's been done, you know, countless times in wrestling. But that's when TBS saw that fucking live clash. The I can't remember who signed the memo. Do you remember? It's in my fucking book, I think. But that's when they sent... The memo said, no, no, you can't do this. And we used to joke, the uh, professional wrestling is a show about gratuitous violence, and they told us that we were not allowed to show any more gratuitous violence. And then they talked about branding irons and uh, crowbars, and I can't remember what else had been involved, but they went absolutely ape shit over the plastic, but Flair loved it, Funk loved it, I loved it, Kevin loved it, because people loved it. They went crazy, and that, as I said, I can't think of another match that uh, during that at least a year that that did the house that houses that Flair and Funk did, or the pay-per-view by rate. Because it was heat you could feel, and it was a different match for Flair. Flair was having to have a different match. And and that registered. That's one of the reasons it was a special year '89 for Flair. He turns 40, and he has the Steamboat series, and then the Flair series, two, uh, then the Funk series. Excuse me, two completely different matches. But then they retire him. You know, in '83, yeah. we talked about his popularity in Japan. He announced his retirement, and although he would come back, not wrestling at first, but eventually wrestling for All Japan, it was never the same. Different situation here. They retire him after the I quit match. He stays around. All of a sudden, he's a babyface commentator. And that was heard. And Terry wasn't happy because he went into the I quit match. I mean, obviously, he knew that eventually Flair would win the program in some fashion. Flair won every match, I think. You know, but, but I mean, have the last word in the, in the program without him coming back to get more heat. But heard threw that in. And after I think the publicity was already out on the match and everything, and and it wasn't like a huge stipulation that was announced to the people. Her just said, yeah, and as soon as you finish that match, then we're going to transition. We're going to get you out of the ring and into commentary. He thought Terry was entertaining, but he thought Terry Funk was too old. 
in 19, the, with November 1989, Terry Funk was too old to stay on the roster of WCW in the state that it was in, and he should be moved to be an announcer. This is before Terry was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling or ECW or the WCW back again in the mid-90s or was on WrestleMania 14 and was one of the tag team champions in the late 90s for the WWF and on and on. He was at that point, he was 45 years old and fucking heard, wanted, wanted to, against his will, retire him and, and make him an announcer, which he did the best he could with. And it's not like he was bad, but it was, it, he was not, he also, they put him on the booking committee. But since everybody had a side at that point, and he was just trying to come in and do his work, nobody was really taking up for him. But yeah, that was the thing. 45 years old, it's Terry fucking Funk. And Heard was like, oh, I gotta, you know. But he always, Heard always wanted to make people announcers. He wanted to make me an announcer. He wanted to make Funk an announcer. He, he was the first one that started paying the announcers as much or more as the boys. Because that's where his head was at. He was, oh, this is TV. Hey, eh, fucking idiot. You know, you brought up winning the tag team titles. He was in the WWF, like you said, in the mid-80s, first by himself. He had that Saturday night's main event match with Hogan which was a great match. And then with Haas Funk, including one of the better JYD matches of the era, that tag match at WrestleMania 2, that's one of the reasons he was working with JYD. They knew he can get something out of JYD every night. Not many people could. But he returns later on as Chainsaw Charlie. <laughs> I was never a big fan of that because I loved Terry Funk and I saw the kind of work he was doing at that point in the 90s. I thought there was a better usage of him that was apparent, but they used him as Chainsaw Charlie We've actually heard in the Cult of Cornette Facebook group and via email from some fans that that was their first exposure to Terry Funk. And believe it or not, that made them fans of Terry Funk. Well, and I've never been able to get a straight answer because I st I've heard that Terry may have wanted to do something like this just in case they weren't serious. He didn't have his actual name on it <laughs> because remember... We got to back up. He was going to be at Survivor Series 93, right? That's right. One of the masked nights. It was going to be for Jerry Lawler, but then Jerry Lawler had his scandal and left. So it was going to be Shawn Michaels returning because he had been on hiatus to lead the masked nights against Bret Hart and his brothers. And since the, the angle had been Lawler and, and the Hart family, they wanted to give some kind of oomph to the knights. So they were going to have recognizable people but and terry had agreed to be one of them but then he found out he was going to get unmasked and he's like well they're going to beat me and unmask me and it's a one-shot deal so he left the note on vince's hotel room door sorry vince had to go home and tend to my sick horse yeah can you imagine i mean this is terry funk and this is 93 and in 93 he's about to do a lot of really cool stuff in smoky mountain he's doing good stuff but he's about to do really good stuff in ecw He's about to have a few appearances in WCW a year later, and then later come back there. They're going to unmask him with a, who was it, Jeff Gaylord? Yeah. Greg Valentine? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. that wouldn't have really worked well for him. And, well, and he knew that, so he departed. But then where were we going? Oh, so with the Chainsaw Charlie thing, 
it may have been a deal where like he didn't necessarily want his name on it until he felt it out a little bit. But also when I first heard it, I'm like, Chainsaw fucking Charlie, why are you not you? And I couldn't. Bruce told me this reason and that reason, the other reason, but you can't ever tell whether Bruce is telling the truth about anything or not. But the Chainsaw Charlie thing, the actual name, came from what he used to call his friend John Ayers, who used to play in the NFL. And he was from West Texas also and had gotten cancer, later passed away. I know they did a number of, you know, uh, benefits, memorials, etc., you know, in his name. But point being, he, he used to call him Chainsaw Charlie because of the chainsaw he had on his property or whatever the case. So that's how Terry became Chainsaw Charlie. Now, this was all, none of this was shared with Kevin Dunn, the erstwhile vice president of television programming and producer, whatever. But we were in a production meeting. And again, it came up, you know, Chainsaw Charlie's going to, he came out of the box. That's how he's, <laughs> uh, anything, anybody that comes out of a box gets over. That's where this came from. And Kevin Dunn had to bring up, well, now it's a new character, so should we? I said, you really, you honestly know that as soon as he comes out, whether he's got the pantyhose on his head or he's dressed whatever, that they're going to know that that's Terry Funk, right? Well, Jim, this is a completely different audience, and it is, and I think it was Madison Square Gardener. Was that, that was, yes, it was Madison yeah, Square it was Gardener the garden. there, too. Yeah. Same place that he didn't think they'd know who the fuck Cactus Jack was that he brought the house down. I said, I'm just telling you, or the announcer is going to say something because you know, they're going to know who this is and whatever the fuck. Kevin's like, <clears throat> as soon as Terry came out and lifted that chainsaw in the air and did that circular walk leaning to the left, the people started chanting, Terry, Terry, Terry. Anyway, so... You know, again, this is 10 years after the other guy thought, well, we'll make him an announcer. And he's still tearing the house down. And through the injuries, I don't know, going back to the, the program with Flair and Steamboat in WCW in 89, he broke his coccyx. Is that how you say that? His back. I mean, that's a better way to say it, but his coccyx, well, yeah. No, it's not your back. It's, it's your, your lower back. Bone. It's your tailbone. It's yeah. your tailbone. It, it's imagine feel back ladies and gentlemen in in betwixt the crack of doom back there the sharp pointy little bone right at the top of your crack that's your tailbone he broke that and didn't want to because he was in main events every night and he didn't want to hurt the company didn't want to take time off so he would get on the airplane and he would strap himself in the seat for takeoff. And as soon as they turned the seatbelt sign off, he would get out of the seat, turn around, kneel in the airplane seat, hug the back, and ride to the town the rest of the way like that because he couldn't sit long enough on his tailbone to take plane flight. And he was working the main event every night. And then, you know, he becomes this independent superstar. You know, independent wrestling means a lot of different things today than it did in the early 90s. In the early 90s, there were a lot of people didn't work out for. A lot of people you may have seen end up in Dallas in the dying days or on Savaldi's TV. Wasn't a lot happening, but there were certain guys that can come in and work an indie shot, and it meant something. 
And Terry Funk was one of those first guys. You know, he had a series of matches with Eddie Gilbert, even before ECW, worked for Dennis. He, of course, did a lot of stuff for Joel Goodhart. Terry was really, he was working for, yeah. he even did USWA, he was in the World Title Tournament, of course, or the Universal uh, Title Tournament, uh, Universal Champion. So, I mean, he was doing all these different things, and then in 93 with ECW, he comes in under Eddie, stays for Paul Heyman. The early days of ECW, when people really were talking about, you have to see what's going on there, it was about three wrestlers. Sabu, Shane Douglas's promos, because at first you had never heard anyone say fuck, so it was a big deal for a little while, and Terry Funk. And it was, Paul Heyman used him differently than anyone else ever had or ever would again. It was the Terry Funk that the fans loved. Yeah. Middle-aged and crazy, and we love him for it. And it, it was perfect for that environment because, as we've talked about, most of the Philly fan base especially, but most of the ECW Northeast fan base were the emerging smart fans that now we're looking at Terry as, and Paul played into that with Desperado, the theme music, and he's an elder statesman. He's a legend. He's, because they were, they were so supportive of ECW as a promotion itself, and they see this guy who doesn't have to come in there, doesn't need the money to do this crazy shit, uh, but is as helping validate their company so he becomes, for the first time in the United States, you know, probably nationally ever, and for the first time in the U.S. in almost any territory in years, he becomes the beloved Terry Funk. And they're carrying him out of the ring on their shoulders, the fans are. He was a different kind of worker, and that's one of the reasons he stood out. You know, some of the matches that exist from the 70s, him against Bill Watts right before he won the NWA title, and. Uh, for Leroy McGurk, not even Mid-South Wrestling, various different things. You see the bumps he's taking, the things he's doing to himself in the ropes. Yeah. No one else worked like that. And by the 90s, he evolved with wrestling. And, you know, some people go, oh my God, I can't believe he's doing these things at his age, but he wanted to. And at the same time, he was doing things in ECW that at times went too far with barbed wire and fire, of course. Yeah, the fire was really too far. You know, one of the last classic Terry Funk heel runs was in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Well, and that that's another of the things at the same time that he and even and Dory came up and, and did some barbed wire stuff. But at the same time he was doing that in ECW, he was having completely opposite style classic NWA-style Southern wrestling matches in Smoky Mountain with the Armstrongs and Tracy Smothers. And, you know, it, it, it was like he was a chameleon. He fit right into everything. And, see, that was the thing, is you couldn't, in Smoky Mountain wrestling, I couldn't make Terry Funk a baby face because he had the television exposure not only from southeastern wrestling for all those years before that but then from wcw and wwf as a heel and plus that was his strength when he came in as a heel to oppose a territory babyface he could be the heel that traveled in and out the babyface was the local hometown boy and we're behind him 
my my fan base, as we've talked about on the program, was the furthest thing from newsletter reading smart fans. So they didn't see Terry as a beloved wrestling icon. They saw him as the heel that they'd always seen him presented as. So what better way to, and not only because they had history together, but what better way to find somebody that the people would think could possibly put an end to or defeat or hurt or maim or whatever bullet Bob Armstrong than a guy that's been on his tail. They've, they, they wrestled in Southeastern in the seventies there. They had history. So that's what I was telling you earlier today. Terry Funk main evented the worst house I ever drew in the Knoxville civic Coliseum. And then my record best within the space of 11 months. And I will tell you how this happened. We did the big blow-off match with me and Bullet Bob Armstrong in August of 1993, and that's where we'd shot the angle in the Rage in a Cage in May, and we'd hospitalized Bob. And then Scott and Steve came back, tried to get even with the Heavenly Bodies. And then Bob came back in six mans, and finally it was a single match, Jim Cornette versus Bob Armstrong. The ten um, Lumberjacks, surrounding the ring with tennis rackets in case anybody tries to leave anything goes and bob swore he was going to send me to the same hospital that he went to himself when i hurt him or he would refund everybody's money and at that point we did the biggest house we had done in our what 16 months in business or whatever and drew over 3000 people but the next month was september back-to-school month, Tennessee Valley Fair month in Knoxville, traditionally the worst house that we'll do all year. But I needed to start something because we Thanksgiving and Christmas and our big winter was coming up. That's when I called Terry. He was, as you said, making shots in different places, and I got him to come in and work with Bullet Bob in September. And the deal was the, since I'd gone to the hospital, I'd found a guy that I thought could beat Bob Armstrong, bullet Bob Armstrong, and by cracky, if Terry Funk can beat Bob Armstrong, then Jim Cornette becomes the commissioner of Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And here's the thing, I know, especially even better now than I did then, but I know that nobody wants to come and pay to see the heel get even with the baby face. That's ridiculous. Nobody wanted to pay to see after they'd seen Bob send me to the hospital on a backboard and a bloody mess. They didn't want to see me get even with him. They'd seen what they wanted to see. But I had to start something. So in September, that show in the main event from, from Bullet Bob against Jim Cornette drawing 3,000 to Bullet Bob versus Terry Funk drew 700 and something. But as I said, I had to start something. The psychology was off. Terry came in, and he started the program by having a good match with Bob Armstrong, but by fucking him with the branding iron. And I believe didn't it was that the one that Dory came, or was that the next time? Uh, I'm not sure. Anyway, point being, he fucked him with the branding iron, and that was the worst house we ever did in Knoxville. But by the following February, remember Sunday, Bloody Sunday, 
the Texas death match between Bullet Bob and Terry Funk was on. It was a loaded card, but that was a feature match. And that show did $32,000. We did over 4,000 people. And then by August, that was the Night of Legends. Again, another loaded card, but the main event was Dory and Terry and Bruiser Bedlam with me in the corner against Bullet Bob, Road Warrior Hawk, and Tracy Smothers with Ron Wright. And that's where we did $40,000 and over 4,000 people. We started the program. Terry came in and got the heat. We brought Dory in to have tag team matches with Scott and Steve, Scott and Steve, excuse me, Armstrong, in several different places, not only Knoxville, but they worked in Marietta, Georgia, when we ran in WCW's backyard. And the Armstrong boys were thrilled because they're, not only did they grow up in the wrestling business where Dory and Terry were world champions and, and colleagues of their fathers and they looked up to them and they were heroes and legends, but now they get to wrestle one of the great tag teams of the NWA of all history, especially the 70s and 80s, that they never thought they'd have that opportunity. And it stepped their game up because they were enjoying what they were doing. It was an honor for them. Like if a modern baseball player got to, you know, play in a game against Mickey Mantle. He might be older, but he's it's still fucking Mickey Mantle, right? And they learn some shit. But that it, that's the point I'm making is that, is that they were the Armstrongs and the Funks were or Bob Armstrong and Terry Funk were having matches, the quality of which in Knoxville and Smoky Mountain that you would have seen in Georgia Championship Wrestling or Florida back in the 70s. And that style of work and and the fucking people loved that because that was the Tennessee crowd. And then they're going to Philadelphia and they're having all these crazy matches with especially Terry with Sabu and Barbed Wire and who knows what fuck's going on up there. And the people are loving that. It's a completely different style and he's a completely different guy. Yeah, you know, within a few years, I got to see, I was very lucky, I got to see live Terry Funk and Smoky Mountain Wrestling, the main event in Knoxville. It's a big deal just to have him at the West Town Inn with uh, the rest of us fans. <laughs> and then I got to see him in ECW for Barely Legal win the world championship, and that was all just about Terry being the ultimate sympathetic babyface that you wanted to get behind. And then I got to see him live in Amarillo against Bret Hart. Also in 97, in September. Yes, you you bastard. I didn't even get to go to that one. It was the week I started Nassau Community College. I got to fly down to Amarillo, Texas. It was the day Fritz von Erich died. And that was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Because it was still... I shouldn't say still, because I never went there in the 70s, but Amarillo was a real small town. And Terry was big deal. And all the wrestlers were there in the town, and... Terry took everyone out to a bar. We all got to go to the Double Cross Ranch. And it was a really special show. And they say that Bret Hart, although WWF champion, wanted to put Terry over. He did. And Terry insisted that that couldn't be the end. Well, and that um, we had done earlier in, what was it? It was probably 1995. Uh, the Heavenly Bodies and I did a show in Amarillo. Oh, at I always the Amarillo heard about that. Civic Center. Yeah. Is there any footage of that? 
Marty claimed there was. Marty Funk claimed there was, and I've begged for it, and I've never seen it. But what that show was, and then we'll go to uh, Terry's match with Brett in a second, but they had gotten a sponsor. I think it was High Country Chevrolet. I have the program around here somewhere. And Terry called me to see if uh, if he could get some talent, not only because um, they were running the show at the Amarillo Civic Center, and I believe it was going to, some or all of it was going to benefit John Ayers, who was still fighting cancer at that point, I believe. But it, so it was the Heavenly Bodies, uh, Tom Pritchard and Jimmy Del Rey with me against Dory Funk uh, Jr. and Dick Murdoch because Terry was in the main event with Eddie Gilbert. And I wish we could have worked with the Funk, so does Dr. Tom. But, uh, and then up and down the card, he had, you know, different people from ECW or from Smoky Mountain or, you know, whoever he was friendly with. But it, it, the Romeros, the Romeros were there. Yeah. Cause they were local, the young bloods. Um, and they were local superstars there, but we, we jammed the play, did like 6,500 people, the capacity of the Amarillo civic center and what a fucking crowd. And the bodies match with uh, Murdoch and Dory got over like crazy, and then they spanked me with my own racket and all that stuff. And then Terry tore the house down with, um, it, it that was Eddie Gilbert on that one, yes, I believe so. Terry I think, and Eddie in the main event. I think it may have been '93 because that was in the middle of, like I said, Terry and Eddie had matches not just in ECW but for different people. That's one of them that no one has seen. It seemed like a great indie show that just no one has ever seen the footage of. Yeah, and you know what? It, was, it wasn't 95. It was obviously 93 now that I think about it. But in 97, the match I went to that you're about to talk about, yes, that was billed at, at first it was going to be Terry Funk's retirement. And again, we talked about two other retirements yeah. he's had already. Then it was his retirement in Amarillo. And then it was celebrating 50 years of Funk in Amarillo. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure what the stipulation was. Well, it... I think he stuck to it that because uh, he originally told me when I talked to him about the show, it's going to be my last match in Amarillo, Corny. But then they discovered that 97-47, Dory Funk Sr. made his first appearance in West Texas in December of 1947, and so they did the 50 Years of Funk tagline, which was more fun anyway. And I'm the one who booked Brett officially for that. Obviously, Terry Funk called Brett Hart on phone anytime he wanted, but I was doing the third-party booking, and I think they got some other guys. Terry had asked for a couple of people, I think, but specifically, Terry wanted to work with Brett, and Brett obviously said, my God, yes, Terry, to work a single match with Terry Funk and Amarillo, I would be pleased to. Brett's whole family came in. Yeah. Stu was there, Ross was there, Bruce was there. Big contingent. And, you know, and that was the thing is that Terry, Brett obviously wanted to put Terry over and Terry said, no, then they'll know it's phony because, you know, I'm winning my last match. Your Brett Hart was who he was at that point. Uh, you know, not current WWF champion, I don't think, but about to be. No, and he was, no, he was WWF champion. Was this he is, champion then? This okay. Is right before, this is That's two months right. before Survivor Series. Okay, well, anyway, nevertheless, he still wanted to put Terry Funk over. And Terry didn't want it because, it, you know, that would be ridiculous. Here I'm, he said, I'm 50 years old or whatever, and I'm, you know, saying it's my last match in Amarillo, I'm going to beat the WWF champion. 
so he insisted that they not do that. But again, that's, you know, what kind of guy, the kind of respect that the boys had for him. Well, it was the same thing with what, what was that? 2008, we did that wrestle reunion show for Sal Corrente. And it was the Midnight Express, Bobby, Dennis, and Stan in a six-man against Dory and Terry and Mick Foley. And me and Bobby Heenan were in the corners. Oh, wow. Think, that had to be either, it, it was in, um, goddamn, what is that communist enclave in Pennsylvania? King of Prussia. Communist enclave? <laughs> yeah, somehow they've got a communist enclave right there outside of Philadelphia. It's called King of Prussia. And he did the wrestle reunion and had that match booked. And we're, well, yes, okay, sign us up, right? And then we get there, and Sal Corrette, he, he says, well, I want you to you guys to fuck them. What? Yeah, you guys go over. I'm, I'm bringing you guys back, the Midnight Express, but I don't think I'm bringing Dory. I don't care. What are you talking about? And we could not convince Sal Corrente that not only would it be a downer for the people, but that it was preposterous that the Midnight Express as the heels would win that match over those four individuals. And he, no, 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 no. So then we all sat down and Terry's like, why well, you can beat me. And Mick's like, no, I'll drop it. And we're like saying, no, we're trying to talk him into letting us get beat. I don't remember whether Dory ever offered to <laughs> to do the job or not, but everybody wanted to get beat. Nobody wanted to go over. And finally we said, all right, fuck it. I think we fucked somebody. I can't remember with the racket. I can't even remember which one, but then immediately Bobby, who was, his mobility was a little compromised at that point. And it came up from behind me and rolled me in the ring so that he could get involved. And then Cactus put the mandible claw on me while fucking they ripped my, they, they didn't rip my pants. At least I just unbuckled them and they pulled them off. And then Dory and Terry both put double spinning toe holds on each of my left and right fucking legs while I had the mandible claw on me. And I figured just besides the fact that that was just the coolest thing in the world, at least that may have made up to the ticket purchasing patrons for Sal Corrente's ridiculous, stupid fucking finish request. You know, one of my favorite videos out there, and I've talked about this in the past, Bob Barnett did a video of it, a few other people did. It was an indie show in California promoted by Dan Farron, the late Dan Farron. He's alive, but Mike Leno announced that he died on two <laughs> different radio shows, so we call him the late Dan Farron. And he did this show, it was, the, it was an afternoon show, and there were like local lucha guys on it, and I know Kurt Brown wrestled as Vandal Drummond on it. I believe he lost his hair on that show. And the main event was Sabu versus Al Snow which in 94 was kind of a big indie match. This is what put Al Snow on the map for a lot of people, where the matches with Sabu, and they have a good match. All of a sudden, in the middle of the match, Terry Funk shows up. <laughs> Not booked on the show. This is a small indie show in a residential neighborhood <laughs> in California in the middle of the day. And Terry Funk shows up and starts tearing the place apart and attacking everyone. The woman who owned the building flipped out and called the cops. They, and it's all a video because they didn't know who Terry was. Terry starts going after the photographers like you talked about earlier. At one point, there's a video cut and it returns. And Terry is now outside in the parking lot under a car. 
And again, it's daylight. I mean, it's just, it's daytime. And Terry's screaming while under a car. And the video ends with Terry walking away shirtless down this residential street. <laughs> it's incredible. And again, there was no one else who could have pulled that off. And it was just the kind of thing that outside of his mainstream stuff, if you want to call it that ECW, WCW, WWE, there was not an appearance that he made anywhere that wasn't incredibly memorable. Well, you know, you talk about making an impression. I've mentioned this. He's the only guy. I mean, back in the day, the, the fans, the male fans, grown adults that weren't smart to the wrestling business would run from the chic in, in the buildings, whether he had a snake or not. But as people started getting smarter and or kind of more with the lawsuit thing, at least, where, you know, yeah, he can't hit me, I can sue or whatever. They always used to tell heels, don't get up in one person's face. Yell at everybody as a group and you'll get heat. But if you get up in one person's face, and we've talked about it, if they laugh at you or they don't flinch or they fucking blow you off or whatever, then they've just buried you. With Terry, he could go out in a building cold and before or after kayfabe was still a thing and he would get up in a guy's face and back a motherfucker down and and i mean he got away with it before when you would any other heel would try to do that and they'd get a knife in their fucking ribs and then he could still do it when they were smart that yeah these people probably can't fucking punch me i could sue them or i could call the cops or whatever but i'm not sure about that fucking guy you know, and there's also the way he talked, and it wasn't until years later, just because of my age and what I grew up watching, that I ever saw a King Curtis promo. And once you did, you understood where Terry got the whole, like, Aah! like that thing in his voice came from King Curtis. And the emphasis when he gets to something, but with that Texas drawl. But he could, he could be the most softest spoken guy if he needed to be in a professional setting. Or he could, you know, go out of his mind. What do you think of the stuff with him and Dusty Rhodes over the years? He seemed to love calling Dusty Rhodes an egg-sucking dog to the point where he put that phrase on the map. And even years later, I remember talking to Terry and asking about Dusty. And almost with a smile on his face and laughing, he's like, he's an asshole. Yeah. Like he loved calling him an asshole. It wasn't like, I don't like the guy. It was, I love him. He's an asshole. <laughs> well, and that's a, a, see, Dusty's a Texas boy and an egg sucking dog is the worst kind of dog that you can have, Brian, because then you ain't got no breakfast when that dog goes in the coop and sucks all the goop out of all them eggs. I guess. But that's, <laughs> you know, they had such a rivalry for so long and in so many different places again and it was perfect complement of styles and talkers that could not only do the gimmick matches and stipulations but talk people in the building and you know so i th i think there was uh obviously you know they had probably more fun with each other than all but a few of the other people that terry may have worked with and you know in terms of behind the scenes stuff you know, you talked about the fact that after Dory Sr. died, Dory Jr. and Terry really became power brokers between all Japan and all the American wrestlers that weren't wrestling for New Japan. Not many were. I mean, I was really just Vince McMahon Sr., Mike LaBelle, and guys from Europe. Everyone else was going to all Japan, and Terry and Dory were the conduits. And it wasn't just booking talent. 
when Terry Funk arranged the meeting in the Amarillo airport between Stan Hansen and Giant Baba, who flew in just for that meeting and then flew back home, yeah, that changed wrestling history. Stan Hansen jumping from New Japan to All Japan, Terry Funk was the one who was there to put Baba and Hansen together. So, Terry not only being the father of, not the father, the son of uh, a promoter, but the son of one of the most well-respected, most influential promoters, he loved the wrestling business and understood how to spread or grow the wrestling business or sympathized with people that were trying to do that. Same thing. You know, Paul in, in Philadelphia, he had a a bigger budget um, and he had more, you know, dates going on up there. But Terry in Knoxville with me, he understood what I was trying to do. He'd been to that territory before and knew it was a great small territory at one time. And, but also he just knew I was trying to establish something. And that's why I'll tell you, I paid Terry Funk $500 and a plane ticket from Amarillo, Texas, and a room at the West Town Inn to come to Knoxville for me. And he did it because he, uh, again, he loved the wrestling business and he understood and sympathized with people that wanted to grow it or spread it or establish it in different places. And Dory was even because Amarillo to Knoxville, especially 30 years ago, he was flying all fucking day and then had to fly all day to go back home or get anywhere else. And so he wasn't doing it for the, uh, the pure profit of it. And uh, Terry, a few times he gave me a break on, uh, if, if there was two or three days in a row, like when we did Knoxville, Barberville and, and, uh, Marietta one time. And Dory was closer. Dory was down in Florida, but he, he even, he and Marty both, I'll give them both credit. They came up a couple of times to do run-ins and appear at the time that Bruiser Bedlam worked with Randy Savage in Knoxville. Dory wasn't even booked, but they heard about the show and they said, well, we'll come up and do a run-in because that was building later on that summer to the Night of Legends. So they both helped tremendously in helping me set up Smoky Mountain. And, and Terry knew it wasn't like, the, well, this is going to be a thing where Corny's going to call me and have me come in 10 days a month, nor would he have wanted to. And I'm going to make all this money. He was just helping me try to establish wrestling in a place that didn't have any at that point. And he understood the trials and tribulations of the business. And it was the same thing in Ring of Honor. When you were there when Terry was there at the Hammerstein yeah. Ballroom, right? Remember, we had to get my cousin Alex to go pick up Terry in Midtown at the Hilton. That's right. And he was at one Hilton, and there was another Hilton across the street. So my cousin's trying to find Terry, and Terry's like, Alex, across the fucking <laughs> <laughs> that was the That was actually the last time I got to see Terry, was when uh, you brought him to Ring of Honor. And uh, it was actually uh, the last time I saw him, and he came right up to me and uh, in front of the Manhattan Center, and we said hello, and it was great to see him. And, and that, that was the thing. I, you know, I called him, and this was, what was that, 2011? Uh, I think Probably. so. 2010 or 2011. Um, I had called him, and I said, Terry, you know, have you seen any Ring of Honor? I've seen a little corny. And I told him a little about it. I said, uh, you know, I'd love for you to come to New York. It would mean a lot to us just to speak to the boys and do the uh do the main event where he was he the what the fuck did we even have him do now was he the ringside enforcer because i remember he 
he shot uh, Truth Martini off so Truth could take his over-the-top rope uh, backwards Harley race bump. But what what did he fucking do that night? God damn it. I don't remember. All right. Well, he was a special referee or enforcer or whatever, but he was there to make sure that people didn't fuck around and they didn't fuck around with Terry Funk in the building. And the fans in New York loved him. But I called Terry. I said, look, I swore. You know, this promotion is on a shoestring budget. New York is our big town, but Kerry, the boss, is a ticket broker. He, I said, we can fly you and Vicky up for the weekend in New York City and put you up in a nice hotel and get you tickets to a Broadway show the next night and pay you, I think, was it $1,000 or whatever, if uh, if you could come up and do this for her. Corny, I'd love to. Let me see what show she wants to see. It'll be the Book of Mormon. <laughs> no, it wasn't the Book I, of Mormon. I, I'm trying to remember what the fuck it was. I think it was, was it Jersey Boys. Was that a show or something oh, like yeah. that? That was a big show, especially at that time, yeah. But yeah, and 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 Stacy, first thing she thought of when she heard, you know, yesterday was, I remember Vicky was, because the Ring of Honor shows took a lot longer to get done with than the NWA shows of the 70s and 80s. And Stacy had gone outside and there was Vicky sitting on the front steps of the Hammerstein. You know, we're like, well, how long does this usually go? <laughs> That's why I don't remember what happened then. I think it left early. But they were uh, they were commiserating as wrestling wives that they used to be able to get out of the building by quarter after 10, 1030, and now it's fucking midnight. Hey, when you think about his promos, and there were so many classic ones over the years, you know, we talk about guys who were great promos. Terry was a great promo, and there were specific promos you listen to or look at, and you're like, wow, what a promo. Whether it was having the fake Ric Flair, or dumping the motor oil over his head, or saying that he has his fans in Florida while he had cornrows. There were all these amazing promos, and, you know, I remember at Smoky Mountain when you brought him in, he just started one off just naming... Bill, Brad, Brian, Steve, Car how many legitimate and illegitimate Armstrongs yeah. are there? In an era where everyone does scripted promos, or guys maybe get the ability to say what they want, but they don't know what to say or what to sell or what they're getting across or how to get it across, what made Terry so special? And what, if any direction, would anyone ever give Terry Funk for a promo? Um... He would ask, for example, if he was coming in to work somewhere that he wasn't on a regular basis and didn't know everybody or had a long-term relationship, he would ask, well, you know, what's this guy's deal? What's he done? What's he do? You know, what? just something about him. You can't just talk about somebody that you've never seen. He would want to know something about, you know, a guy that he's talking about. But otherwise than that, you know, the fucking information. What, you know, am I selling a match? If so, where is it and when is it? What's the date and the place? Are there stipulations or not? And then, no, you didn't. You just said, and Terry, can you be under two minutes or we're, we're needing a, a minute or a minute and a half or Terry, do whatever you want. I mean, that was the, the, and even then, if it was a live appearance in front of people rather than a pre-tape in the locker room or something standing up in front of the wall or whatever, he would obviously say the shit that he needed to say, but he wouldn't know what the fuck he was going the, the whole, I think I see a sissy, and that whole 10 minutes he did on that that day going back to it over and over again probably came from 
you know, him saying to Lawler, hey, can I call Jimmy Hart a sissy on TV? Sure, Terry, okay. And then that that's all it took. So, no, there was no, you know, scripting or no explicit direction otherwise than the details that he needed to to impart to people. And otherwise, it was all Terry knowing how to get himself over and how to, you know, get a rise out of people and, and how to say things about his opponent that would get more interest in the match without just burying the guy and making him look like a piece of shit. And he was creative. I mean, every promo stood out. Dusty Rhodes, even like in 89, there were promos where he's talking to a, I think to a horse's ass. Yeah. He's saying it's Dusty. There's another one where he takes a chainsaw and he cuts a picture of a blob and he says it's Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> there were all these different promos. They all stood out and they were all Well, and, and that motor oil promo, we heard from Barry Rose may have been one of the people I heard about it from. Uh, first, but before we got the tape, we heard Funk was in the shower pouring motor oil over his head. And he did it because I want to see what it feels like to feel like a greasy, smelly Florida cracker. And and he's in the shower and he's pouring the motor oil over his head and it's shot with like a VHS camera, but that adds to it because it looks like a fucking lunatic, a serial killer. And he's, I know all of you people have all the grease and the dirt all over you. Well, yeah, just, it was, but then he said years later, he said he ribbed himself because it took him a week or two to get all that fucking motor oil out of his hair, off of his fucking, out of his ears. But he would, you know, he'd go to any length. And that's the thing we talked about, alluded to some of the injuries earlier. You, when you would see him in the back or you'd see him in the locker room, you know, you might say, Terry, you okay? But as soon as he went in front of people, in front of the camera, whatever, it, it, it disappeared. He was, he was him and he was doing that shit. And, and then he would go come back through the curtain and he'd cool down and be grandfatherly limping Terry again. But it's like he could he could turn the injuries or the pain or the damage on and off too, which I obviously you can't you can only do that for so long. There was a promo we did once at Memphis. I don't even remember who all the participants were, but it was going to be like a six man tag match. It was him and someone and Tojo against whatever Lawler and two other baby faces, and Terry forgot who his partner was, so he's talking about it. And I'll just say you as the other person. He goes, and hey, it'll be me and Jim Cornette. And that Japanese goof. <laughs> and how could you lose with a Japanese goof on your side? Because <laughs> he forgot the name Tojo. Well, they didn't cross paths too often in their various careers. He certainly uh, does. You, you said it at the top. He certainly does have one of the legitimate claims to being the greatest professional wrestler of all time. It's a thing that everyone will always argue. But if you want to talk about people who have legitimate arguments, he's up there on the list. Well, and and that's the thing also because there was so much variety. And I'm not talking about, you know, him reinventing himself in terms of the gimmicks as he changed with wrestling. I'm just talking about the shit that the variety of shit that he could do. The the different kinds of matches that he could have with different kinds of people. And sometimes if he didn't have any any opponent worth having a match with, he could have the match with himself. And he could instantly figure out 
how to have some kind of entertaining interaction with anybody of any style, whether it was a great wrestling match or whether it was almost devoid of any wrestling whatsoever and was just fucking crazy or something in between. And sometimes he just, he just picked up on things. If somebody reacted to when he threw the baby face out of the ring, he would throw the baby face out of the ring five times in a row. He'd throw the baby face out on one side. A baby face would climb through. He'd fucking grab him, run him across, and throw him completely out. As soon as he got back in, he'd throw him out the other. He'd throw him out every side of the fucking ring. Lawler said one time, he said, God damn it, Terry Funk throws me out of the ring more than anybody ever worked with in my life. But he would do whatever that particular crowd on that particular night, not even the same town every week, but just those people there right then. He could hear it. If something happened that they got up about, he'd do all kinds of more of it and just forget whatever might have been briefly discussed beforehand. When he went to the ring, he had a finish. And if there was anything that was pertinent to the finish or to the program that had to be done in the match, he would know that. And otherwise, well, like I said, the when he had a cage match with Lawler in, in Louisville, and they were too cheap to have a cyclone fence made, so the, the the cage matches they had been having, they just have chicken wire, like six feet high, nailed to a two-by-four, and they would wrap it around the the ring, around the ring posts, and just tie it together. So the first thing he did when the bell rang was he threw Lawler into the chicken wire, straight through it, and tore the whole fucking cage down around the goddamn ringside. <laughs> And then they had their regular goddamn crazy-ass match that they would always have. I got a picture of him from Knoxville from the Night of Legends that I took from my seat. It's not the greatest photo or anything. It's just, you see the other wrestlers in the ring and on the floor, you're there, Ron Wright. And you just see, like, a barricade going up and over. And it's yes, where he, yeah, he picked the bicycle rack barricade up. and you know. Do you remember how they got him over in WWF when they brought him in in 85? Truthfully not. They'll probably never show this. I don't know if it's on like an old primetime or TNT or something because Mel Phillips is involved, who, of course. Was oh, the thing where they where he, he he beat Mel Phillips up and whipped him with his rope for putting his hat on. I do know. I do remember that. Yeah, he comes out there with the whole Terry Funk outfit, the vest, the chaps, the hat, the branding iron, the whole thing. First appearance on TV, takes everything. And you always see the ringside attendant take the things, fold them up, carry them. Mel Phillips has this thing, he has that thing. Instead of holding the hat, he just puts the hat on his own head. And Terry, and you gotta watch the way he does it, he's perfect, loses his mind and kicks the shit out of Mel Phillips on TV. This is his debut. And yeah. just, Terry had a way when he would throw, I don't even know if you would call it a punch or just a hand, like it was almost like Pete Townsend. It was like a windmill. Like the overhand see, sledges. Yeah, it would come yeah. all the way around and he's just wailing on Mel Phillips. again. It was a good thing in the long run. It turned out Mel Phillips was not just a pedophile, but a foot pedophile. But he did it to Mel Phillips. I don't know if they'll ever show it again, but that's what they did to get him over as a crazy wild well, no, man. That, that, in. That's not what they did. What's what he did? That's what he did. Yeah, I guarantee you that nobody said, oh, Terry, by the way, kick the shit out of our ring announcer while you're at it or whatever. Um, but it, it, it came up. And you know, that that's that's the thing is that he was a master of improvisation and he'd been in every situation 
and he'd seen every kind of thing, so he knew how to deal with stuff on the fly so well that, you know, and plus things just came to him. And it was a natural, you know, a natural talent that he had, that he could go out and simulate conflict with somebody and get over in front of a large amount of people that may have never seen him before. Pretty much just like that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, I know we talked about a lot, but him as a person, just because, you know, like I said, I'm fortunate I got to know him. He somehow tolerated me as a teenager in the 90s, calling him at home and talking to him for hours <laughs> about everything. And I first met him when I was 13 at a Resi's convention, and meeting wrestlers was intimidating. Kevin Sullivan's a nice guy. When I met him, I felt like he was giving me the Inquisition about the Knicks, because I was wearing a Knicks shirt. <laughs> you like the Knicks? Oh, Jesus. All right. Terry put on like a whole show for me. I was 13. He was fighting with his soda can. He was making me laugh. He said, we have to look tough in the photo. And that never left me. And they always say, don't meet your heroes. Then you hear someone say, oh, but they didn't mean it about this person. Yeah. Truly, Terry Funk, despite the fact that he was the greatest heel, when you met him outside the ring, when you met him and you were a kid meeting a wrestler you were intimidated by, he was just an incredible human being. I'm fortunate I got to go to his ranch. I got to know him, got to be around him. But what a great guy. What a great human being. Well, and that, that was the thing when I first met him as a photographer. And obviously, you know, he could tell, even though the, I'm sure the boys were telling him, because that's one of the things I was going around at the time doing was the funk interviews. I was, I'm 19, right? This is the greatest thing. And I told you, Lawler. And that's where they kind of figured out, well, he can do everybody else's promo. Wonder if he could actually fucking aggravate us as himself. But Terry was kind and nice to me as the photographer and sending stuff to Japan, to the magazines and signing my books and everything and, and not killing me at ringside. And then he comes back a couple years later and I'm in the business, barely. And obviously they told him, well, part of it were Ribbon Cornette. You remember our old boy photographer? He loves you, so we're going to fuck with him. And he didn't hurt me or, you know do anything bad. It was, it was a great way for everybody to get over and have a good time. And then it was six years later. Suddenly he comes into the second biggest wrestling company in the world. And the boy photographer who was barely a manager the last time that I worked with him, flares putting me on the goddamn booking committee. And you know, and and he's able now, and not, I'm thrilled because, my God, you know I was the biggest wrestling fan in the world. And even though I'd been in business for a while at that point, still, Ric Flair has specifically asked me to be on the booking team of WCW, and he's working a program that I get to help book with fucking Terry Funk, who is now... Tre treating me, I mean, he's seen me on television. He, he knows I've been somewhere, but now he's treating me. He didn't have to. Like, I belong there as, as a booker. You know, and it's like, oh, cat corny, we can do this or that or whatever. And helping and always, you know, helpful suggestions, finish, whatever. And then a few years later, he, he again, without needing to, 
to help me establish the promotion I was trying to establish. He is flying uh, an entire day from Amarillo, Texas, to come and work with Bob Armstrong in Knoxville. You know, he was just not only a loyal person like that and a great person to be around and a understanding person about a lot of things about the wrestling business, but dedicated and you could depend on him. And if you didn't belabor it, right, I'm sure if I'd have started trying to book him, you know, to, you know, clinch co Virginia or whatever, he might have corny, aren't we taking this a little too far? But, you know, I didn't wear his welcome out. And every time I interact that in back in the WWF, you know, we could laugh about 10 years before when Heard thought he should be an announcer because he was so old. And now he and Cactus Jack are the two of the most popular baby faces in the fucking company that kicked fucking Jim Heard back to fucking St. Louis. And Mick Foley should get a lot of credit for as he was rising to fame, he always made sure to bring up Terry Funk and keep Terry Funk around so that a new generation of fans knew there was a connection there. Yeah. After all, Japan, and again, Terry's popularity never reached the levels it had in 1983. Terry was one of the people responsible for legitimizing and getting Atsushi Onita and FMW over. And he did a lot of those matches over there. And him and Mick went to work for Victor Canones. And they did that big death match. What was that, 95? I think so. Kawasaki Stadium. And, you know, again, maybe not the style of wrestling I like. Obviously, Terry was doing it for a reason. Well, the reason was incredible amounts of money because they had, didn't they have 40,000 people at that stadium or 35 or somewhere in that range? It was this packed stadium. I don't remember what the crowd was. Yeah, the point is... it. <laughs> If you're going to have an exploding ring match, okay, if there's 40,000 people to watch it, I guess maybe, you know, if you're going to do it, that's the place to do it. Um, and we, we talked about that much like with, with Mick, people have taken, uh, the takeaway from him with their superficial outlook is, oh, big bumps and a lot of blood and hardcore overlooking the incredible verbal ability and the incredible intelligence that he has and the psychology of wrestling and the working ability of knowing how to sell and uh, etc. Same thing. They said, well, Terry Funk did hardcore stuff too. Yeah. He invented a lot of it and his shit drew and he made it work. And then everybody else has said, okay, we'll ignore the wrestling talent and the psychology and we'll just wrap ourselves in barbed wire and blow the ring up at 15 minutes it's that superficial look at what he was doing because just from seeing pictures or brief video clips without context that now everybody thinks well it's easy to do we can all do it and that's why they all do it but i guess you know in a less offensive and less dangerous way you could say that about the road warriors because they got over so strong everybody had to paint their face and wear a mohawk it's just it's more obnoxious when everybody's taking bumps and thumbtacks and setting themselves on fire well of course terry funk's career spanned many styles and he did many different things many different looks he's one of the first chameleons in terms of you would see a photo of him and you'd see another one a year later different hairstyle different facial hair different outfit maybe wearing pants, maybe wearing trunks. 
You never knew what you were going to get. Oh, I had, I, the, the long, um, he wore those in the nineties. I first saw him when he came to Smoky Mountain, he wore them at ECW and then all the way through the WWF, but the long tights with the multicolored stripes around the leggings and everything, it kind of made him look different. And you talked about the different stuff he did. I've told this before, but I was there at ringside the first time he ever did the moonsault against Bob Armstrong in that Texas death match at Sunday, bloody Sunday. And he sees the big crowd and said, okay, I'll try this. And had no idea he was going to do it. I didn't. And he puts Bob on this pile of chairs and then climbs up to the top rope. And I said, what in the fuck is he going to do? And he moonsaults off and Bob, he told Bob move. Well, Bob rolled in, but he's on all these fucking chairs and Terry kind of went over him, grazed him a little bit. But I said, I leaned under the bottom rope. I said, Terry, what are you doing? He said, I don't know, Corny. <laughs> he just got a wild hair up his ass, as Mama Cornette used to say. But he did that, you know, like, well, I'll see what happens. Remember that image that so many people now look back at that. Wow, it looks incredible. Pretty scary moment, all things considered, in ECW, the summer of 94, where Terry asks for a chair. And it became a thing that had to stop. One of the few things ECW put their foot down about. Yes. Fans throwing chairs and just the ring would be littered with chairs. It started, I believe, the Funks versus Public Enemy. That's right. And he asked the people for a fucking, it's like when Ricky Morton used to ask the people in the front row, help me. And they'd come over with a fucking knife. He's like, give me a chair. And what was it like? Had to be 60, 70 chairs. Easily flew into the fucking ring, right? Yeah. And again, there are wrestlers in there. Public, yeah. enemy, Public Enemy had it easy. They were on the ground. Terry Funk, the guy who called for the chair, he quickly had to start ducking and diving to avoid getting hit in the head with a chair. Yeah, that and that wouldn't have flown if, if it hadn't have been... What was the name of that building they were in? The ECW Arena? Oh, was that the arena? Okay, I was going to... If it had been... I didn't know whether it was New York and they were at the Elks Lodge or whatever, but if that had been any legitimate arena that you had to rent like uh, Louisville gardens or Knoxville civic Coliseum or the Atlanta Omni or whatever, they might've banned wrestling over that. It was, it was bad enough because people could have got fucking hurt, but they were trying to help Terry Funk out. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it, it, I guess that's that we could sit here and talk about difference. I'm sure I'll think of five different Terry Funk stories that I've, not said here or great examples of matches that I've, you know, loved to watch or the bumps that he took that nobody else could take that I would even try to take one every once in a while when I was a manager and, you know, it wouldn't work. But as much help as he was to, he was helped me in Smoky Mountain. He gave me advice in WCW when he was, you know, he was tolerating me as the junior member of the booking team. But he helped me business-wise in Smoky Mountain. He helped Ring of Honor that time, as we mentioned. He made the WWF in the late 90s for the period of time he was there a lot more entertaining and or palatable for me just to be able to see him there. And, you know, I've been able to, uh, from, from this guy that just before I'd ever even met him in person, blew me away and made an impression on me to where I said this is a five-star match. 
to be able to get to meet him and and know him as a fan and then as a co-worker and or part-time manager wrestler relationship and then you know on the fan fest circuit whatever the case all through these years you don't you don't think somebody like that's ever going to go away they're always around in some form and i just yeah i realized with yesterday that we have we've almost i will say almost as a qualifier because there's few people still around and i want them to know i'm thinking of them but we've lost almost everybody that got me interested as much as i was in wrestling to begin with a long time ago and it just it's sad that those people you know spread so much they got they made more wrestling fans or made wrestling fans bigger fans because of what they did or got the business over and expanded it and the only thing you know that we see lately is the business contracting and with those people not around anymore you wonder who are the next who's the next guy that's really going to make a lot of people watch whatever pro wrestling is called these days and Terry was one of those, and there's not going to be any more of him. There certainly won't be, and we, of course, share our feelings with so many fans and the family and the friends of Terry Funk all around the world, but with that, Jim, we will return right after this short commercial timeout. We return here with the drive through and we have some good news for some of you out there. Jim, you're not reviewing Dynamite here today. Yes, I, I I don't know whether I mentioned it or not. It's been a while uh, since we started the program, but I didn't have the heart to watch what they do after this news. So we're going to try to cover the, would you call it the high points or the low points? Anything that caught anybody's attention, we'll cover that on the experience coming up this weekend. There certainly were a lot of high points, at least as high as Tony Khan gets this past Wednesday. But one thing I did want to ask you about in terms of AEW news, again, all in, right around the corner. We're going to be reviewing that in a few days. The news that has come out, Chris Jericho's band Fozzie will be playing <laughs> Wembley Stadium before 80-plus thousand fans to play Judas. What do you think? Do you think they had him, uh, or he had him switching babyface and the timing of all this was perfect so he could be a babyface and get Judas in front of a Woodstock-level crowd? He'll be up there with the Rolling Stones and fucking Beatles now, 80,000 people to... Uh, Beatles never had that many. He could well, say he did true. more than the Beatles at Chase Stadium now. Yes, I've played in front of more people than the Beatles. But isn't that kind of like, you know, fucking... What was the guy... What was the act they got at the Philly Bash, the Great American Bash in 86? Um, Delbert McClinton. Delbert McClinton. Delbert McClinton probably hadn't played in front of 15,000 people in a while at that point either. Uh, but you know, I guess they, uh, they want to make all the entrances a big deal. And of course, Chris has a soft spot for his fuzzy band. And so I'm not surprised. No, at least he's a baby face. If they'd have done it when he was a heel, that would be the ultimate. We don't give a shit. We want to, because I mean, he's still the most popular heel in history because everybody sings his song, but at least now that he's a baby face. That's not so offensive. 
I don't think it would have stopped him. He was a heel coming out with everyone singing that song for the majority. No, I'm of the saying time. It, it wouldn't have stopped him, but at least it's better now. It fits. How big a stage do you think Tony will give him? Boy, wouldn't it be great if they had like <laughs> <laughs> they had like a fucking eight by eight foot little raised platform over in the corner, and all of the fuzzy guys had to get together and fucking turn their instruments out so they didn't poke each other in the eye, and there was Jericho in the middle. I, they'll probably have uh, what? Will they have the eighty foot inflatable penis that the Rolling Stones had on the uh, Some Girls tour, or? What no. will they do for this? No, there's a reason the Stones even retired the uh, inflatable penis. I don't think they'll have that. Do you think Jericho will do any of his famous dance moves? Ooh. Now, he's got to have room to, to to cut the rug, to lay some leather down. So maybe maybe they can, maybe they can put him a tap floor out there, or they can, like uh, Carol Channing and George Burns used to do when they do the <laughs> sand dance. They sprinkle a little sand on the fucking stage, and he can do the old soft shoe. You know, I see a lot of Carol Channing in the uh, later period Chris Jericho work. Yeah, they're starting to resemble <laughs> each other physically now that you think of it. See, I knew we'd get something out of this. All we had to do was meander around long enough that I could pop out with Carol Channing, and then the rest is is gold from here on out. Carol Channing and Chris Jericho, what a duet. Hello, Tony. Oh, hello. <laughs> it's so nice you turn me face where I belong. <laughs> You're booking swell, Tony. Really swell, Tony. Dusty Rhodes could never hold a candle to you. Well, we uh, shall see, and I guess here. Fozzie at Wembley Stadium. I will watch it. If Jericho has enough space to do his dancing, because again, we've seen enough videos of him. Really into his dancing, and it's really embarrassingly bad. The perpendicular moves, the horizontal moves, they all come at odd angles. The spin. I mean, just the, all the moves. If he does that, I'll watch it, but we'll see what happens with Fozzie at Wembley Stadium. No, now, here's the thing. Should we dare now all the people going to Wembley Stadium, as soon as he's finished, start screaming, Encore! Encore! Just see if he knows another Ooh. song. Because that way you wouldn't have to see the match. If he did another song, it'd just keep going. Finally, Chris, we're out of time. Good. Who's he, who's he wrestling? Ostrich? Uh, Will Ospreay, yes. Oh, boy. Well, maybe they can just cut that one down time-wise a little bit. More music, less wrestle. If the fans at Wembley chanted encore, would Tony Khan be willing to give Chris his encore? I think you'd almost have to. Well, you got to give the people what they want. But if you have a tight, you know, again, you're broadcasting from London to America. There's a time difference. You're trying to fit everything in on this paper. Well, they don't really. They, when do they pay attention to time? They don't pay attention. <laughs> this thing's going to be six hours long anyway. People are going to shave at intermission. This, this thing's going to be so long to begin with. And what, what do we? We went over about 10 or 12 fucking matches the other day. And now we hear they've changed another one. Because I'll blow one thing. I read the recap of Dynamite. A.R. Fox that turned on Darby Allen after being his good, close, personal friend for all those years apparently turned back and they've taken him out of the match and they put another guy in the fucking match because he changed his mind about stabbing his friend in the back two weeks after he did it. So we don't know what we're going to see. Forget about what he did to Darby. He almost killed Nick Wayne at his home. I think he apologized, though. 
And it's a, if you if you got if somebody's going to kill you, wouldn't you rather be killed at home than out in the cold, cruel world or in some strange place where at least you, if somebody fucking kills you at home, you can crawl up on your couch, be comfortable in your last moments. I don't think it works that way. Well, it, it, if you if they just let you malinger a little while, you could get up on the couch. Jim, that's a perfect transition. Speaking of malingering for a little while, we have received a lot of feedback from people, the Cult of Cornet Facebook group, Twitter, email, who wanted to get your opinion, wanted to find out if you were involved. I guess Netflix just announced a new documentary series featuring the modern-day OVW. Yes, and many people have asked me that on Twitter, and, and as I said, I've been busy. We've both been busy the past couple of days. I have not seen anything other than the trailer for this that has been out on the internet i am not involved in this um i was reached out to i guess it was almost a year ago danny davis i don't know whether he's in the thing or not he he actually came up here they flew him up here one day last year to sit down and talk about ovw which he did and at that time, asked me, well, anyway, they'd like to talk to you. I'm okay. Um, and then I was going to get together with Danny, but that's when I had that one cold that I had in the last three and a half years and didn't want to go out and risk spreading it or getting worse. And when Danny got back, somebody had given him COVID and he got back home and got sick. But nevertheless, um, so no, I'm not in the documentary because at that time I said, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit there and talk about how great the company was 20 years ago and how bad everybody else has fucked it up since then. So I, you know, and I don't want to do that. But so I don't know what the, I've read the uh, synopsis of the documentary. I believe there's a little dramatic effect being go going on there. Well, they have to, they have the summer to save this once great wrestling gym because the losses are staggering well they shot it last summer and it's still around and i'm pretty sure the losses are still staggering from what i can ascertain so's the booking um a lot of things are staggering and i'm not trying to put the mouth on them because it's just sour grapes but no ohio valley wrestling now is ohio valley wrestling in name only from the operation that danny davis and i were involved in many years ago let's just put it that way and you know if, if i did a, a part in this documentary it would be like sitting down to talk about my brilliant child that i had high hopes for that has since dropped out of school turned to crime and is now in a penitentiary and i didn't feel like going all through that if you don't mind i'd like to ask you one question about this yes when you see modern day OVW or the training school there, whatever it may be, getting credit for being the place where Batista, John Cena, Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, and others have come from. Do you think that's a fair thing? Or do you see, again, like you kind of just said, you and Danny Davis, what you guys had as OVW as a completely separate entity from what is now called OVW? Well, no, it is the, it's the same company it's the continuation of the lineage. Al bought it from Danny. Al has sold. I don't know what the, ex I'm not trying to do their taxes, but according to the synopsis of this documentary and what I have ascertained in the past, Al has sold either all or most 
of the company to a group of investors he found here in Louisville, one of whom is now the governor, not the governor, the mayor of Louisville, Craig Greenberg, who before he was elected last year was involved in this investment. So it, it, technically, yes, the lineage is correct. Brock and all those guys did come from Ohio Valley Wrestling. That was a long time ago, unfortunately, in a galaxy far, far away. I'm not knocking Al Snow or our mayor or anybody else's efforts, but no, it's not the same thing. And unf <laughs> the, the advantage that I had in 1999 with Ohio Valley Wrestling was that Danny Davis had started it as a wrestling school, and once he got enough guys trained that he could put on a spot show. He was doing small shows and he had a, a affordable building that was later condemned when we moved out of it, but it was affordable that he could do his shows and his taping in. And he had a time slot on a low power television station here in Louisville. He had six guys, Nick Dinsmore, Rob Conway, Doug Basham, The Damager, Trailer Park Trash, I'm thinking, Flash Flanagan, and Jason Lee, six or seven guys. I have probably left somebody out. That you could use on a wrestling show in pretty much any situation. There were tools there. There was opportunity there. We needed a bigger, and we've done the deep dive. We needed a bigger television station with more power and more reach, and we got it. We needed to get out of that building and into a more modern facility, and finally we got that. We needed sponsors such as Six Flags or the radio station Clear Channel or uh, some of the other people that we worked with, and we got those. But what there had there was no reputation on OVW as being good, bad, or indifferent because only the the really diehard wrestling fans in town had seen it. And then we were just able to put it in front of more people. And there were more wrestling fans in Louisville that picked up on it when they knew it was here. Then we were able to upgrade the talent with the developmental deal, as well as when we got a better program together, we got guys wanting to be involved in that program and wanting to come here to train or to get experience. Then when we got the sponsors and the better coverage and et cetera, et cetera, then everybody in town is seeing OVW, and there was nothing to stop them from saying, oh, this is, wow, this is good for local wrestling, rather than, oh, I remember when it was really good 20 years ago. Because now, the problem is, even in the last years that Danny owned it, it went through situations. There was no experienced booker there was a variety of bookers that thought they were bookers and now unfortunately there's no access to talent nor is there a lot of incentive for talent to come because there's not a pipeline to a bigger company or the chance to work daily alongside veteran talent great trainers myself as booker whatever the case so it's a local wrestling school and a local wrestling promotion still with the same name but now the point i was making is it's being compared to what ovw was here by all the people in louisville if they see it and they're old enough they would compare it to what ovw was from 99 to 2009 
and say, eh. and if anybody new sees it, they're going, oh, fuck, we heard all kinds of great things about OVW, and this is what we're fucking looking at. So they're in kind of a no-win position. But a lot of prominent people have invested money <laughs> into the program from what we are told here by Netflix. Well, we'll see what happens with uh, their money and also this documentary series. But Jim... You know, for a while, touch and go, it's always a close shave, you know, when you're talking about wrestling. It certainly is. I was even going to say that so many of the great talents that you developed in OVW got brought up to the main roster and immediately told, you better shave that off your head, whatever it may be. Yeah, you know, they want to shave their heads. They want to shave their backs. They want to shave their chests. As a matter of fact, we used to have classes on how to shave your balls. Classes? Classes. What did I say? You said classes. You had classes on how to do that? We had classes. That's what I said. I thought that's what I said. Why did you repeat it? We had classes and how to shave you. Because think about this. What's going to happen if somebody hooks you over, over your head and grabs your tights and picks you up for a vertical suplex and right as you're up in the air in front of the TV cameras, God and everybody, that hand pulls your tights down so your little tallywhacker flops out and there's a goddamn Brillo pad surrounding not only Mr. Wacker, first name Tally, but also the twins underneath. You don't want all that mulch and undergrowth and the various crops to be exposed on television. You want people to have a nice, clean view of you. So we, we taught ball shaving. All right. That's correct. Tallywhacker, have you watched Porky's yeah. lately? No, not lately. But thankfully, folks, we had the finest personal grooming products known to man when we would conduct these ball shaving classes, courtesy of our friends at Manscaped. <laughs> because, again, you know, you set guys down in the chairs, and we had the little chairs, the, the little special chairs where they let your balls hang down. What chairs are those? I've never well, seen they're, these they're chairs. The, they're the barber ball shaving chairs. See, you sit in it, you spread your legs, and it's got a V in the front where your balls can hang down so that somebody can come along with, for example, the Manscaped Platinum Package involving the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, and they can take that lawnmower and they can just zip, 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 and go right through there. So they just, and then you learn how to do it yourself once you let the other guy do it a time or three. Well, you were involved with these classes. Where was this ball barber? Do they get down on their knees? How do they do this? Well, you know, they actually, they kind of get down on their hands and knees and they go in a perpendicular motion across the front of all the people that are sitting in the V-shaped V shaped chairs with their <laughs> balls hanging low so that the hair is easily accessible. And then once they finish with the lawnmower 4.0, well, the next thing that a good ball barber is going to do is take the weed whacker ear and nose hair trimmer from the Manscaped Platinum Package, and he's going to stick that up your nose and in your ears. And then you're going to be slicker than come on a gold tooth in all of those orifices. And then, as a matter of fact, after they've cleaned your nose and your ear and your balls and your taint and potentially your crack and maybe done your, your sideburns because the the lawnmower 4.0 does a heck of a job on the sideburns. Then maybe if you get a good ball barber, they'll lather you up with the ultra premium body wash and the ultra premium two-in-one shampoo and conditioner, the ultra premium deodorant, and the crop preserver anti-chafing ball application stuff that they have. That they have. 
They have this at Manscaped in the Platinum Package 4.0 and every great ball barber, they uh, they stock themselves from Manscaped. So they're going to have this, this uh, uh, plethora of equipment here. How do you tip a ball barber? Well, just the tip only. Just the tip. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Well, you asked, so I'm telling you, just the tip. But the Platinum Package 4.0 will cover all your bases from head to toe and hair to ball fro. And get get you away from all of that. That's what it says right here. This is Hazel sent to us now. Would you stop incriminating people? She knows more about this than we do. Not the ball shaving, the, but copy, the copy. The copy. The copy, yes. But anyway, what I'm trying to tell you is, if you want to become your own ball barber, now most people, when they achieve a level of success, they want to go out and have their balls professionally done. But but I've never heard that ever. Well, well, you haven't been successful enough yet to afford your own. You know, ball barbers don't come cheap. Sometimes they don't come at all. But <laughs> nevertheless, if you don't want to have someone come in and service your crotch area on a regular basis, you can do this at home. You can be trained and go through ball barber college by getting a Platinum Package 4.0 from our uh, platinum package from Manscaped with the lawnmower 4.0, because that way you've got the equipment and then it will become counterintuitive to you or self-intuitive to you. The opposite of counterintuitive. Yeah, not counterintuitive. That's not what you would want. It becomes self-intuitive to you <laughs> to use this fine trimmer in the manner in which it's supposed to be used. And you don't have to have the ball barber come in every once in a while and clean up. You can do it yourself. As long as you don't feel like it's slumming. I mean, some people think that it's a sign of failure in life that they have to shave their own balls. That they can't afford somebody to do it for them. But you don't have to pay that money. You could send that money to charity. <laughs> you could. Maybe this could be Brutus Beefcake's new gimmick and come back as the ball barber and take those big shears to the testicle region of yes, the jobbers and, and that he beats. That, <laughs> sometimes that's what happens. You get one of these off-brand ball barbers with the big shears, and that's that's where self-nudification comes in. But anyway, if you'd rather be your own ball barber, folks, manscaped.com will fix you up. That's the point I'm trying to make, and you'll be clean and smooth and smelling fresh, and you won't have to go down to the ball barber college or the ball barber store and... And you don't have to tip your ball barber. You can just save the money and send it to charity. Do something good with your ball money. And right now, speaking of ball money, if you go to manscaped.com and use the code DRIVE, D-R-I-V-E, you're going to get 20% off and free shipping. Not only the performance package or platinum package, it used to be the performance package, and then they upgraded it. Remember that? You don't remember that, do you? I remember that. Well, why didn't you say I remember that? I thought I did. It turned out I was on mute. Turned out you were muted. Well, it's not the performance package anymore. It's the platinum package because the gold standard is no longer good enough. Now they're on platinum and you can get 20% off that or anything else on the fine site manscaped.com if you use the code DRIVE when you check out. 20% off and free shipping. So there you're saving, but send that ball money to charity also. All right. Well, that was the ball How report. How much money do you give to balls each year? Well, I support Manscaped. I 
support our sponsors. I get some fine products from them. No, I mean, I mean, how much do you give to ball charities for people who don't have the money to have their, their balls shaven? I'm not aware of any of these charities. There are several institutions set up for people who need money to help get their balls shaved. Do you have any recommendations? I think the National Ball Hair Institute. Also, let's... Uh, in Aspen? In Aspen. And and then let's not forget over in over in Lincoln, Nebraska, there's the the Pubic Hair Professional Association or Pupa. We can never forget them, of course. Don't forget Pupa. No, I couldn't. Well, there's two. There's two organizations, so that you did a better job than two, I thought you would. Two of many. Two of many. Manscaped. Once again, what was the promo code? <laughs> Manscaped.com. Use the code DRIVE. That's right. And let's drive over to uh, some wrestling news and get your opinions and takes on a few things. I have here an interview with Tony Khan from The Hollywood Reporter. Here's the question. This next one is probably the trickiest question I have for you. Oh, boy. Similar to Hollywood, wrestling is a business of stars. That also means big personalities, and at times clashes of personalities and their opinions and interests. There has been much talk in the wrestling business about the dislike and disagreements between some of your big stars, especially CM Punk and members of the elite, Kenny Omega, The Young Bucks, Hangman Page, that led to a reported physical altercation last year. Some are concerned about what that means for locker room morale and AEW overall. These stars will all be in London after their infamous run-in last year. How do you see your role in managing such tensions? Do you leave these things to the wrestlers to sort out? Or do you give any guidance or step in and draw a line? Any thoughts on the question? Uh, boy, well-worded. And Tony better have something to say for himself as a result of that. Now, let me guess. He's going to say a lot of words, and none of them are going to mean anything when you get to the end of it. The most important thing to me as the CEO is the wrestling fans. I'm a huge wrestling fan, and I try to think like a wrestling fan. I want the best wrestlers here in AEW. I want the best roster. And there may be some of them that don't get along with each other backstage or on TV. It's not ideal, but it's a reality. And I can't make everyone get along. I'm not sure it's necessary even in the best interest of pro wrestling for everyone to get along. (laughs) But ideally, everyone is going to be able to focus on their matches and putting on the best shows for the fans. And I think that's what we've been doing. We've had really strong ratings. So even though. Wrestlers backstage hate each other and don't want to be friends with each other. I think we all agree this is a really exciting time for the company. (laughs) And it's a really exciting time for the wrestling business and the wrestling fans. The building's on fire, but dinner smells great. There's a little more, but let me stop there because that was a bunch. What do you think of his initial comments? I get, and you know, he, he tried to do something in there in the middle of that where he said, you know, they don't like each other in the locker room or on television. He's trying to... Because honestly, if he answered the question, 
completely honestly and upfront, he would be saying, yeah, they, they really, they're all supposed to be friends and we're working together. Nobody's supposed to dislike anybody, which kind of works against the concept of wrestling that they're supposed to dislike each other within the, the creative world on television. What he might could have said was, look, this is a combat sport and there are going to be tempers flaring, and there's going to be personalities, like you said, and there's going to be tension, and everybody wants to be number one, and I understand that. What we're not going to allow is our athletes fighting in the locker room, endangering our other employees, endangering people that might be backstage at the arenas. We're not going to tolerate locker room fights or anything of that ilk. If they want to settle things, come to me. I'm the matchmaker, and I'll make the matches, and they can do it in the ring. But I'm putting my foot down that no matter who's on my roster, they will coexist in a professional situation unless they're booked to fight each other. And then they can have my ring and they can have at it. And then you've cut and then just stop having everybody get beat up in the fucking locker room for a work on TV anyway, because it means nothing anymore since it's done five times a show. And then you've covered the goddamn situation and you sound like you have some balls because everybody knows Tony doesn't have the balls to do anything about this, but he doesn't have to come out and admit it when talking about, like you just said, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think everybody's going to like each other, but we just want what's best for the fans. Yeah. Sound like you're in charge of something, even though you're not. That's what I think. There are a lot of people around here who think they're the best. <laughs> And I think a lot of them have a valid claim that they're the best. And what I'm trying to do is create an environment where everyone could go out and prove multiple times per week and create a platform where the fans can decide who the best wrestlers are, what the best rivalries are, what the best matches are. As long as I can keep top talent in AEW, we will have the best matches and the best big events. Oh boy. The lineup of wrestlers competing on AEW All In is the strongest group of talent we've ever assembled on one show. It features some of the biggest matches in the history of this company. Is this still in re response to that question you just asked? Yes. Okay. Uh, it features some of the biggest matches in the history of this company, and I think it's going to be one of the greatest days ever in pro wrestling this Sunday. Whew. He's very optimistic. Um, but again, that's what Tony does is he... He starts by kind of addressing the topic that was brought up and then swerving to how great everything is and how wonderful he thinks everybody is, and that's the way he ends it. And then you don't know any more when he's finished than you did when he started. Well, that was Tony Khan's interview with uh, The Hollywood Reporter. Go read that wherever you find your favorite Hollywood Reporter. Jim, several listeners have been sending this in all morning, and Jace Nakarado just reviewed the entire 22 minutes. Hulk Hogan, <laughs> who's on a media blitz, he did Joe Rogan's podcast, Theo Vaughn's podcast. He's now on Muscle and Health Magazine's <laughs> online platform doing an interview. What, what is he pushing? Apparently he's now involved with CBD or marijuana, something. One of the things that all these guys keep getting roped into, he's now involved with. Okay. And I'm sure he'll make a fortune. But in doing this interview, some of those classic Hulk Hogan lies have been coming out, or as he may call them, my story. 
I'm going to play you. I'm going to, I'm reading the quotes here as I'm uh, talking to you. I'm going to play you this clip. Feel free to stop it at any time because it's filled with whoppers. Okay. I have not heard this yet. I'm only reading the notes, but let's go to this from Muscle and Health magazine. You were telling me earlier, before we started rolling, yeah. you brought Simon Cowell to the United States. Well, he came, he came to help with the wrestling albums. I was, uh, long story, I'll make it short. I was in Wembley Stadium and I saw a lot of Make-A-Wish kids. It was wait, me, what? Michael J. <laughs> wait, what? Oh, wait. <laughs> the question is, the question is about him claiming he brought Simon Cowell to America. Well, yes, and... Now, we, we know that Simon Cowell was involved with the wrestling album. Not his wrestling album. You're talking about the one they did in 1992. Yes. Not, it, it wasn't Hulk Hogan's album. It was a wrestling album that Simon Cowell did in conjunction with the WWF when he was a producer, right? Right, but it wasn't, I'm not even talking about Hogan. I'm talking about it's not the original wrestling album from 1985. This was... One they did in 92, Hogan wasn't involved. It was Randy Savage, Bret Hart, Tatanka, Hacksaw yeah. Duggan, the Nasty Boys. No Hogan. But, when, Ave, when was Hogan in Wembley Stadium? If it, if it was 90, if the Wembley Stadium show with Bulldog and Bret was 92, right? Was Hogan even there? August 92, Hulk Hogan was not booked. He was not on the roster at that time. He was not there, no. And how long has Make-A-Wish been a thing, and do they have Make-A-Wish kids in England? That I couldn't... Is, I that, mean, is that worldwide? It's worldwide, I believe, but also I think it's been going for a while. I don't think... I got to double-check when it started, but I've been hearing about it for years. Okay, well, anyway then, but yeah, Hulk didn't bring Simon... The WWF did bring Simon Cowell in as a producer on that album. But they didn't bring him to America. The album was produced in England, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you might be. I'm just talking about bringing him in to work with the WWF. That's right. Hogan said brought him to America. He brought him like, to America. Maybe, yeah. maybe it was Eddie Murphy was coming to America. Well, let's go back to this. Uh, but no, but anyway, a lot of this is, yeah, he's responsible for everything. Air, oxygen, go ahead. Jackson, Mr. T, who saw the Make-A-Wish kids during the 80s and 90s. Well, hold on, stop. Let me rewind this a few seconds. Long story, I'll make it short. I was in Wembley Stadium and I saw a lot of Make-A-Wish kids. It was me, Michael Jackson, Mr. T, who saw all the Make-A-Wish kids during the 80s and 90s. Wait. <laughs> me, Michael Jackson, and Mr. T saw all the Make-A-Wish kids during the 80s and 90s. At Wembley Stadium. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying that Hogan's never seen a Make-A-Wish kid. I don't recall Michael Jackson being involved with the program. And maybe if he was, they've hushed it up since then because it might seem unseemly. Uh, but yeah. We okay. would have seen a photo of Hulk Hogan with Michael Jackson at their peak in the 80s or 90s, yeah. whatever he's talking yeah. about. At some point, we would have seen it. Or I've never even seen a picture of Michael Jackson with a Make-A-Wish kid. Have you? I don't want to assume anything about these photos of Michael Jackson with kids, but let's go All back right, to uh, go ahead. let's go back to the Hulkster. I had a kid there that was in, in rough shape. He, the EMTs were with him, and he was on a stretcher, and you know his his body odor and stuff. It had a, a <coughs> smell to it that I, I hadn't smelled in a while. Not bad, but it was just a different type of smell, and I really wasn't sure what it was. And the parents were freaking out. They were Hulkamaniacs, and 
doctors <laughs> and EMTs, you know, the, the kid's in kind of trouble here, you know, so let me say my goodbyes and give him a hug and kiss him. And and I got a nice place for him out at ringside at Wembley Stadium. It's all roped off. So I went to wrestle and I kept looking. I kept looking and the kid wasn't there. So when I came back from... The match wasn't there. You didn't work Wembley. That's what... There's been one... <laughs> WWF event in all of history in Wembley Stadium, right? That's right. And he wasn't on it. No. And they didn't have a place roped off for a Make-A-Wish kid with bad body odor. <laughs> and why is he talking about how the kid smelled? And then he goes, I didn't say he smelled bad, but it was just a very distinct <laughs> odor. <laughs> well, let's go back to uh, the man behind Hulkamania wrestling i was the last person to wrestle the main event i said what happened to the family out there and they said well the kid passed away so when i found out the kid passed away my manager jimmy hart the mouth of the south he used to be in a band too and he had a couple of number one hit songs here in he the used States. to be in a band too I like i did <laughs> hold on hold on one second jimmy <laughs> Jimmy Hart and the Gentries had not only a legitimate number one single, but a legitimate recording career for a few years, which is way, way, way past the level that Hulk Hogan has ever reached in music in his wildest dreams, for fuck's sake. And now he's like, yeah, my manager, Jimmy, he had a few songs, too. Good Lord. Music before. So we stayed up all night and we wrote 12 songs for the kid's family. Oh and I didn't God. know anybody in the UK. And Jimmy um, knew somebody from Select Records. And he, they got a home hold of Simon Cowell. He produced a little album for us. And it went number one on Billboard for eight weeks. And we gave... What? Wait, what? Oh, my God. How, how the fuck did we miss an album with a collaboration between Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart going number one on the billboard charts for eight weeks. Eight weeks. See, that's the thing. It's like, he says these things that are just incredible lies, but then he gives you weird detail to the lie that's a bigger lie, and it just makes you question your own existence. <laughs> <laughs> he's saying it, I mean, he's, he believes his own shit, it seems like. Or something's going on. But let's go back to the whole thing. What were we going to say? I would just, it, it's something's going on. It's like he just tosses it off casually like it. Yes, and then the green space alien took me uh, around to Poughkeepsie in his alien ship for fucking uh, dinner at the diner. See, like even like the story about the Make-A-Wish kid, if he had said me and Mr. T were at Wembley, then you could be like, okay, look, he took a lot of bumps. Maybe he means the garden. But then we said, me, Mr. T, Michael Jackson, we're all hanging out at Wembley Stadium. We used to see all the, all the Make-A-Wish kids in the 80s. We'd all get together once a month, <laughs> go find all the sick kids. Michael would stay longer than us. We didn't know what was going on. Hey! Let's go back to Hulkamania, or, well, Hulk Hogan himself. He produced a little album for us, and it went number one on Billboard for eight weeks, and we gave, donated the money to the family. Oh, good And then God. Simon came back to me and said we need to do the song with a band called Green Jelly over in the UK and something called Leader of the Gang, a G Gary Glitter song. And so that did really well on Billboard too. What? So when I came back to the States, I had the crazy idea since I was wrestling, maybe we should do music here. So I grabbed Cindy Lauper and Rick <laughs> oh, Derringer and a bunch of people and 
we recut a bunch of songs. Land of a Thousand now, Dances. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> now he's going back from the album that Simon Cowell was on back to the original wrestling album, right? That's right. He just went from Sidney 19- Lauper, a.k.a. Mona Flambe, 1992 to 1985. That's right. And he's the one who talks Cindy Lauper into not because she liked Captain Lou Albano, who she watched growing up on TV and met sitting on the airplane, but Hulk Hogan. And, hey, Cindy Lauper, come on over. Let's make some music. And Rick Derringer. He also got Rick Derringer involved. Well, sure he did. Let's go back to Hulk Hogan. Billboard 2. So when I came back to the States... I had the crazy idea since I was wrestling, maybe we should do music here. So I grabbed Cindy Lauper and Rick Derringer and a bunch of people, and we recut a bunch of songs, Land of a Thousand Dances and stuff, and Simon came over and helped produce the wrestling album. Then he came and produced the second wrestling album, Power Driver, and he never left. He stayed here and he became the... That's absolutely not what happened in any way. Besides that, doesn't he still live in England? I mean, he may have a home in Beverly Hills or something, but he... I think still has a residence in England, but he didn't come over here to stay after producing the Piledriver album. He had nothing to do with that album or the one before it. But he's, is this the true definition of a, of a sociopath that he just tosses this stuff off? So matter of factly and casually, that's completely and utterly fictitious bullshit. Do these qualities make someone a good professional wrestler? Well, you know, Yes, but only if you, the individual involved, knows where they have departed from reality. And I'm not sure that that's obvious here that he does. <laughs> that or he's just thinking, these people are complete idiots because I didn't even do research on how to lie about this well. I'm going back in time. I'm conflating incidents. I'm, you know, he's not even doing great prep work where you would have to really do some serious digging to disprove it. Once again, this is Muscle and Health Magazine asking about Hulk Hogan bringing Simon Cowell to America. Let's go back to this. This monster producer and nicest guy in the world. He plays a tough guy on TV, but he's a real sweetheart. Yeah? In person, he's a really nice guy. So, oh, you know, it's, well, just, it's amazing because I watch him on America's Got Talent, you know. So it's all a pantomime, is it? Well, he's doing the the character. You know, he's doing the... Hulk doesn't know what pantomime means. (laughs) You can't hit him with that fucking word. (laughs) The Simon Cowell up there, you know, with the stern face, but in real life, he's a real sweetheart. The irony, because they say wrestling's a pantomime. It's clearly not with the number of injuries you've incurred. Well, nobody gave me the memo that it was fake. They forgot to tell me. Well, yeah, I mean, you can see. (laughs) I didn't know. So, Simon, are you still friends with him? Yes, yes. Well, I think he credits the whole wrestling business, really, because he came and helped produce these albums for the whole wrestling company. But we started with him over in the UK with our little stuff first. And then we brought him over for the, the WWE. Their album. little stuff that yeah, nobody's heard ever. What does Jimmy Hart think? Oh, uh, Jimmy is so nice and kind and. Uh, he just he, he just nods his head, I guess. <laughs> whatever whatever you say, poo-poo. Well, again, there's other things here. A lot of them are related to his new CBD product and various injuries and his health. Uh, hold on. There's one other clip here that Jay said uh, he recommends we play. Let me go to this. Here is Hulk Hogan with Muscle and Health Magazine. 
So you're here at Hogan's Hangout every Monday night. Like, you haven't just developed a place and then left it in your name. You actually come here, you meet your fans, you meet your yeah. regulars, even the crazy ones. I just absolutely love that. That's so cool. And you're doing that despite all the other stuff that you're doing. What about your music? Have you got any more fans to do any more music? You know, right now I don't. Um, my daughter Brooke still messes with music up in Nashville. It worked and out. every once in a while she'll come by the house and we'll talk about music or she'll have a chord progression or something I'll work through with her or pick up the bass and play a bass line that she needs it or whatever. But it's nothing, nothing important anymore. It's just fun, you know? And plus my hands and everything's been broken and Oh, let up. me see that. Those are, those are like teeth marks. Can I touch <laughs> that? Ooh. Yeah, they're all around She's my touching his hands. She's a bit over the top. But yeah, she's touching his hand and he's a... Uh... He, I don't even think he knows how to react to her, to be quite honest with you. No, just different things. So wrestling was different in the 70s than it is now. Yes, I'm <laughs> so, sure it was. It was a, little, a little crazier back then, you know. Ah, uh, well, Holt, listen, thank you so much for chatting yeah. to me. You're just awesome. I want to move here. I want well, to it's see a nice place to live. You know, we, we do a lot of partying on the beach, so you got to be ready to run with us around here. I feel as if maybe I'm more ready to run with you than Rick for some reason. <laughs> Rick, Rick would be hard to keep up with. Uh, yeah, definitely. Rick and Mike are like a little bit out of my league. Yeah. Uh, what about what about Ron Howard? <laughs> yeah, he's not in this unfortunately. But she's talking about Rick Flair apparently and Mike Tyson. They're somehow roped into all this CBD stuff or THC stuff too. But we're gonna end it there. There's 22 minutes of Hogan talking. Whatever nonsense he has, there's other interviews he's done. What do you think? I mean, what do you, from hearing him make stuff up? Because I can't imagine he's thought this stuff out. I think it's just coming out as he's saying it. What do you think of all this? I think, you know, it, it might be, like you said, that he just, when they mention a name, he just concocts on the fly some involvement he had with them how he was in charge of something that they played along with that's kind of the mo no matter who the personality is throughout history that is brought up to hulk hogan or the situation somehow at some point in his life he was in charge of it or the instigator or originator of it and it's kind of you know maybe it's like terry funk's talent for working in the ring he's just got a talent for bullshitting as soon as the, the topic is raised. And, and he sounds so genuine and convinced that that was true. Wasn't that actually a story years ago that Terry Funk, even though they got along, and again, he's the one who got Stallone, or hooked Stallone up with the idea of Hulk Hogan, that Terry confronted him in Japan because Hogan did an interview with the Japanese press where he said he beat Terry Funk somewhere. And Terry, like, saw him out one night and confronted him over it. Did you ever hear that? I, I seem to remember something like that. God, we got somebody out there chase down the details for us. That's right. Well, perhaps you are someone who <laughs> likes the truth. Perhaps you don't know what to do about Hulk Hogan just making up these stories. Perhaps you're Simon Cowell and you don't think it's fair that this guy's saying he's your best friend. You may want to sue. Slander. That's what St Simon Cowell would, uh, would say. He's been slandered because he was not Hulk Hogan's 
lackey and errand boy here, that he's a successful man on his own. And if that's the case, then I suggest that he should call this man to get even in open court. Call Stephen P. And maybe if we can ever find that family from Wembley Stadium that left in intermission because their sick kid with body odor died in the middle of the show while Hogan was wrestling, (laughs) they might want to sue as well for Hulk Hogan slandering and maligning the kid to say he he stunk. I kept looking over. I kept looking over. I thought they just went to the concession stand. (laughs) Yeah. I thought I'd see him coming back with some hot dogs. (laughs) Well, whoever you want to sue, the man for you is Stephen P. New. And I'll tell you what, though, I've talked to Stephen P. New recently, and he has been so busy. He's suing the governor of the state of West Virginia for $300 million on behalf of the inmates of the state's penal institutions, prisons, and jails, which are woefully overcrowded and hopelessly in disrepair. He is still pressing the opioid litigation on behalf of the opioid-addicted babies that were born. He's got all kinds of things going on all over the country, and as a result, he has actually had to defer and or turn down cases brought to him and or refer to other people, cases brought to him, but he's looking forward to bringing close to some of these things and moving on to some of the next chapters and getting back to helping some of the cult of cornet listeners but you too can get uh, your name in the pot and at the very least get some erstwhile advice if not some referral and or some help by calling Stephen p new at newlawoffice.com 888-692-8084 that's what you can do brian that's what you can do I certainly can, and I certainly will, and we'll have an update on Cast Media and Colin Thompson and Live One and Podcast One and Rob Ellen on the next episode, but we're going to focus on just Terry Funk today in the big picture. Jim, one last thing before we get out of here. A lot of people are sending this in, and there's various sides to the story, obviously. The rumor that Edge is going to be going to AEW, including the rumor that Edge was going to be at Wembley Stadium for AEW, I guess word went around yesterday. Here, I have a report here. This is from the Observer site by Ian Carey. Edge says WWE... Wait a minute, I thought it was Cash and Carey. WWE didn't deny me. I have contract extensions sitting in my inbox. Hall of Famer addressed recent reports regarding his future. Apparently reports came out yesterday that WWE believes Edge is AEW bound after his contract expires at the end of next month. WWE is said to have, quote, declined to meet Edge's request for what it would take for him to re-sign with the company. Edge posted a video on social media on Thursday refuting some of these claims. He stated that he, quote, didn't come at them with some crazy contract and that he has a contract extension offer from WWE sitting in his inbox. Here's a quote. Actually, I have audio. Give me a moment. All right, Jim, here's some audio that Edge posted on his Twitter page. Let's go to this. Morning, everybody. Um, 
is how I look in the morning. It's not pretty, um, but need my coffee for this. So I, I uh, woke up to a bunch of voicemails, texts and everything from actual like friends and family, you know, wondering what's going on and concerned and blah, blah, blah. So I just figured I, I better address it. Um, there's nothing going on. Um, there's no hard feelings between me and WWE. I love WWE, you know, it's my dream gig. It's uh, all I ever wanted to do. And uh, I didn't come at them with some crazy contract or anything. They didn't deny me. Um, I have a contract extension sitting in my inbox. Uh, I, I just don't know what to do. Um, you know, the first time I had to retire, it was forced. And this time, the choice in my lap, and it's a lot harder, you know. Um, you know, WWE gave me that night, Friday night in Toronto, and it was the best night of my career. You know, a lot of people will say you should retire at WrestleMania or this or that, but it's not their career. You know, that that Friday night was uh, was really special for me. And I don't know if that can be topped, to be perfectly honest. And and if we think we can, then, then great. But I need to sit with it and it, it, just know that whatever it is that I do, whether it's Percy Jackson, which is coming up soon, um, <laughs> or it's... Uh, wrestling or it's sitting in my rocking chair um, it's because I'm having fun and having fun at this stage of my life and raising my kids are the two most important things so hope that clears stuff up um, I'm going to go back to my coffee see ya All right, what are your thoughts on that? you know it, it. that sounds to me like a guy that's trying to decide whether he wants to retire period or whether he should come back and sign another extension and do another year or two years or whatever the, the term is, not a guy conflicted about whether he wants to jump over to another promotion. And I said on the last show we did, when people were first talking about it, why after 25 years with the WWE, and yes, they would still bring him back and still put him in the Hall of Fame or still do whatever the fuck, or is he in the Hall of Fame already? You know, but it would it would harm the relationship. And if he's going to be in the business when you. Yes, if he was a guy hurting for money or just wanting to cash out, he could probably get, you know, five million dollars out of Tony Khan for a year or two or whatever. But then he'd have to probably do all of the things that they have those people doing that he might not want to do with his neck or at his age or whatever. And there will be, or would be, I would think some rough feelings between him and the WWE, which he has to know he's going to end up if nothing else in business with WWE for years because of royalties and, and, you know, different things that are still going to be open. So I don't I don't seem said I'm going to now go revolutionize the industry in one more year of my career with AEW just for a big bunch of money or whether I'm going to stay with this place that's had my wife for 20 years had me for 25 years and treated us all very nice and we have an ongoing relationship where I make a lot of money I I we'll see what happens but I'm I'm thinking it sounds more like he was being honest hey they want me to renew. I haven't decided whether I'm going to yet, but just because I don't know whether I want to do this for another, whatever the period of that term is, not whether I want to do it here or across the street. A lot of fans are looking at the fact that AEW, of course, like you said, they will throw ridiculous money at anyone 
Hey, but here's the, he was just on SmackDown this Friday night. They can't be that stupid in this day and age that they would let a guy have a big high-profile celebration and a win if he was not contractually bound to them for more than another fucking six days or whatever. Well, I think they're saying that was the last match of his contract, but not necessarily the end date of his contract. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I've I've also heard it reported that his official end of his cave, he may have fulfilled the number of dates that he agreed to if that were there was a specified number in his contract, but the actual contract doesn't expire until a month or two down the road, or there would be some kind of non-compete. So I don't believe that he could walk into Wembley except as a ticket buyer if he wanted to. But again, with AEW, just to play this out, what fans are talking about, Christian's there, his best friend, and the only thing missing from the end of his career, I guess, in the way that Owens and Zayn have something together all the time would be something with Edge and Christian together. FTR are there. They're very close to Edge. You just know they would love for him to come in. The Hardys are there. When you think about the Hardys, you think about either the Dudleys or Edge and Christian. Well, does do either Edge or Christian now think that they could get what they got out of the Hardys 20 years ago now? No, they couldn't, but I'm just talking about in terms of incentive, whatever incentive well, there yeah, may be. Well, yeah, but it... it they wouldn't want to do Edge and Christian and the Hardys because they know the shape the Hardys are in, and they probably figure let's let you know memories rule that one. As far as Edge and Christian against Edge is a babyface and would be a babyface, obviously in AEW because he shows up as a big name. Christian is right now as a heel. Christian's doing another thing to have Edge and Christian against FTR. And it, it, again, there's a lot of, oh, what if matches, but none of them look like they fit perfectly without significant re-racking of what's currently going on that would take a while to do and may not work anyway. And the other thing is, does he want to leave whatever, for the good or for the bad, WWE is and go to a place where... Despite what some people want to insist on publicly, because Chris Jericho just put out some more comments about how there's no locker room problems, it's all overblown. <laughs> but go to a place that's disorganized, that has a lot of frustration amongst the talent. There are issues with the booking. There are issues with the TV. There's just issues everywhere. Constant drama. You get to work with your friends, you get a lot of money, but you got to be around all that. Is that the way you want to go out? Or again, like he said, you know, I feel really lucky. I hit a home run in my last ever game of Little League. And I never came back after that. I was like, okay, that's... There you go. It, that was the last, strong game the, note. last game of the season. Why come back next season? It'll never be better than this. What he just said. I don't care. Unless they do WrestleMania in Toronto. Is there a better way for him to end his career than the kind of moment he had in Toronto on SmackDown? Uh, there might not be. And... You know, he may he may be happy now that he's come back from his forced retirement and done something else and proved that he can do it and contributed, but now it he may be feeling, well, you know, I'm kind of fucking around on maybe I might get hurt again. Is that worth it? And I've kind of proved some things, got a few things out of my system, and I'm three years older or whatever it is, and maybe now's the time. And... uh you know, I I wouldn't argue with that, but I I can't see, you know, it, it just for the money for a year or a short period of time, 
him saying, I'll just throw away the goodwill with the WWE and go over here for a couple extra million dollars over the next couple of years. He's going to end up back there anyway. Everybody's going to end up back there. Well, we'll see what happens with Edge. Jim, before we get out of here, one last thing. Any thoughts about the recent passing of Abe Jacobs? Um, you know, I met Abe Jacobs once when he came to one of the Smoky Mountain shows that we did in Charlotte. We had uh, several of the the uh, legends come in. And unfortunately, because we were in different places and he was just the very previous era to when I got into business, I never really saw him live he was by the by that time had the last years and years of his career was kind of centered in the carolinas so i never got to see him live in person i only got to meet him once but just from reputation and from longevity what an incredible long-running name i guess he started uh what turned pro in the 40s probably didn't he he was 95 years old as he passed the oldest living wrestler i believe so, yeah, so he would have been born in, what, 1928 or thereabouts, probably was a pro in the late 40s, was from New Zealand, was he not? That's why so. the, the name the Kiwi Roll, which was that old banana split move with a roll on it. Uh, but it was such a visual hold or move, I don't, it's both, it's a hold and a move, that all the people in the Carolinas remembered it, and whenever you saw it on you know, a film or any kind of in TV or whatever, you may not even remember the guy that did it or what the name of it would, but you just remembered that, that move because it was so visual. But uh, he was, a, uh, from what I understand, a pretty, pretty good legitimate wrestler too and was a Carolina's mainstay for Crockett Sr. and then later on for Crockett Jr. for, uh, what, 25 years easily. Well, Jim, with that, the drive-thru is closed. We'll return with a song or two next week, but let me play this. Hold on. Where is it? There it is. Oh, boy. Yeah. You know what? I, Hulk Hogan would have probably had Simon Cowell produce that. Maybe. Maybe we'll find out more about Hulk Hogan's antics in the future, but the experience in a few days with a lot of reviews and we have a lot of wrestling to watch. So with that, you guys know how to find us and where to find us. The normal plugs and everything next week. For Jim, I'm Brian. Tally-ho!